Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy. I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, the Hagrid of my heart, Maddox. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Hagrid. I mean, Andy, how, how are you doing? I don't know anything about Harry Potter. Okay, I have to great. confess Easy. right at the top of this show because I suspect perhaps a number of our listeners do. We're right in that generation where people very intensely loved Harry Potter. I just never got into it. I read the first book and it wasn't for me. I was a Lord of the Rings guy. Yeah, I mean, I have a complicated relationship with Harry Potter because of being a sort of like nerdy looking dude with You're brown nerd? hair nerd? Uh, and glasses. Uh, I got wait, wait. I got called Harry. Brown Potter Brown hair makes you more likely to like Harry Potter. To look like Harry Potter. Oh, you just you just think you look like him. I didn't think that. Everyone else did. <laughs> my favorite moment, uh, I think we were at the farmer's market or something, you know, like as a child with my parents. And some dude at like some stall, he leans over and he's like, hey, aren't you that kid from that book? <laughs> from the book. Because this, <laughs> all... this, this was before there were right, movies. This is all prior to the movies. Correct. We're talking about book mm-hmm. era yeah. here. Wow. Did you look like the illustration of him on the cover or I the description know. as provided in know. the book? I just look like a Harry so Potter. The, so when I asked you if you identify with any of the characters, why did you say Hagrid if, you, if everyone said you look like Harry Potter? Your I, nickname could have been I was, Harry Potter looking motherfucker. <laughs> Question seemed open to interpretation. <laughs> okay, great. We're talking about Strixhaven and Commander 2021 today, hence the Harry Potter references. Although, of course, you know, Wizarding School, Bigger Trope, etc., etc. But it's basically Harry Potter. We all know it. And because we are doing our set review show, we, of course, are joined by the one, the only, Jet Quandrix Honor Roll student, Crowdus. I forgot your last name for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So I'm sorry, Jet. Does that mean I'm like a Ravenclaw? I don't know. How does I don't think the schools did the schools map again? A jet, I just said two minutes. Ago. I know nothing about Harry Potter. <laughs> That's right. You're you can't right. ask me Harry Potter it's questions. Not, it's not. It's closest too boomer to Ravenclaw. for Harry Potter. I thought Ravenclaw were the who are the evil ones? <laughs> they're not Slith, evil. Slith, I mean, they are kind Slith. of are evil. It's they're ambitious. Yeah, I mean, it, they're they're not evil in the way that like this set of magic is not Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, sure, <laughs> exactly. They're not evil can yeah, you hear the just air quotes different they just like to murder people yeah. oh jet how are you doing friend it's been a I'm long doing, time since we chatted on the well. show yeah i'm doing well we haven't had you on since the cube map dropped people still love it are you happy with the reception of the map yeah i am it's been really cool to see people sort of play around with it a little bit and also like find things that, that we had never anticipated people finding and, and it's been cool to see how people have used it for their own learning it's always been really cool to see people say ends yeah exactly it's always been really cool to say to see people say oh i'm interested in building you know this kind of cube and then someone will reply like hey there's a whole group of people that have this kind of cube you should check out this map looking thing yeah welcome to tribal artifacts island friend join us the island of misfit toys on the cube map my favorite thing that people have done with it is i love all of the like folk mapping projects people went on where they tried to like group and label continents and states within the map and just kind of like name the different areas because you know we didn't we intentionally avoided any kind of editorialized labeling we didn't want to say like this is the peasant island or whatever even though in practice like that's the island that is defined by largely peasant cubes but uh people kind of went out of their way and did that for us and it was really cool to see all the different labeling people had did to the cube map there was definitely like a, a conversation that we had when we were making the map like should we go about doing this? And then also we decided not to, but even since then, some of the language that sometimes we use when discussing the map is kind of difficult, right? We'll say like, oh, the mainland portion, but like mainland carries some weird connotations and like, it's not really the mainland, even though it's just the sort of largest sort of landmass, so to speak, which is the the group of unpowered, power motivated, just generally updated cubes. Or I would say cubes that don't really have a specific 
like restriction sort of end up in that space. Jet out here trying to watch the feelings of various land masses. Doesn't want to get canceled by a peninsula or an isthmus or something. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I would talk more about the map, but I don't want to get Jeffrey did again. <laughs> That's true. We don't want that. We also don't have time to do it because this is our set review show. We don't have time to go down a big uh, rabbit hole because I'm having flashbacks to the, the massive editing I had to do on the call time set review. We went way over what we expected to go over. So we're talking about the results of the Strixhaven and Commander 2021 surveys, which we run on our website, which will be live as you are hearing this, and also just our general impressions of the set and kind of going down and reviewing what we think it means for the cube world. No listener submitted pack one, pick one, but we'll certainly keep doing those in the future. So if you want to have your cube on the show, send it to mailatluckypaper.co, blah, blah, blah. You all know this. Should we just dive right in? I mean, I think one thing that... Um might be helpful just as a reminder what this sort of set review and survey is. Um, we always send out a, a survey every set release designed to ask the cube community what they think about certain cards. And so each um, respondent will rank all of the cards that they're testing or interested in for their cubes uh, on a scale of one to three. And so generally, most of the respondents we get are from people with cubes that don't really have any restrictions. So these might be your typical sort of unpowered, power motivated, cubes in that space, but we also have a lot of people with different themed cubes, like one drop cubes, and those are all sort of grouped into what we call unrestricted cubes. Uh, and then we also have responses from peasant and pauper cubers uh, as well. And so for Strixhaven, we have about 240 respondents. And for all the cards we'll talk about, we'll sort of mention their average rating that the, um, that the cube community gives them, as well as what percentage of respondents are testing them. Uh, and for Commander 2021, which we'll talk about significantly fewer cards here, um, we have 80 respondents. I'm sure I'm glad Jet's on this podcast to keep things going straight and explain things helpfully as I just kind of weave off into the darkness. <laughs> I, I do. I think it's worth noting that we did, um, you know, we always try to improve the site, you know, one little piece at a time. And with this iteration of the perspective articles, we have added a slight integration with the cube map, which I, I'm really excited by, where on the article you'll find a link to the cube map with every single respondent highlighted. And you'll see very quickly that there are respondents from all over the cube landscape. We are not just reaching, you know, one little specific enclave. I listen to other set reviews and read other set reviews from other content creators. And I think oftentimes, you know, they're kind of preaching to the choir in terms of they're talking to, you know, the people that have found their content and like their approach to cube and are oftentimes playing similar cards and similar cubes. I'm really proud that we're kind of reaching from all over the place, which I think is really great. And then also, if you go on the website and look at the graph where we have the list of all the cards, you'll see the the count, the number of testers, you know, like this card is being tested by 85 of 205 people or whatever. If you click on that number, it will take you to the map with those testers highlighted. So you can basically see on the map where are people testing and playing this card. Another feature I'm really excited about, just to see how, you know, some cards do kind of trend to different areas of the map. Yeah, totally. There are some some cards that we'll talk about that, you know, you can sort of see that there aren't that many people testing them, but the people that are are rating them fairly highly. And if you click on the, the number that Andrew just mentioned, you can sort of see where the, the people testing them are sort of contained. And it gives some interesting, I think, context to some of these results. So, yeah, we've each picked out a couple cards uh, from... <laughs> what i'm just laughing because we've each picked out a couple cards and it's gonna be very evident <laughs> think, you know who picked out which cards as we go through the list no it's very mixed up it's very homogenous we've just selected some cards that uh we thought were interesting we're not going to talk about every single card in the whole set right. uh, but hopefully talk about uh through a couple cards here and there some of the different kinds of cubes that we might be impacted by this set and particular mechanics that we think are going to be interesting yeah and i also want to say that it is not a goal of ours to talk about like all of the powerful cards i think sometimes when 
there's cube set reviews for sets. It's limited to just like, what are the powerful cards? Are they good enough for powerful cube? And that's not the only thing we're talking about. We'll skip over some cards that are evidently very powerful that just are interesting for us to talk about. We'll touch on some cards that are less powerful, but we still think are interesting for other reasons. Are we going to start with uh, with one of my magic boyfriends, uh, PVDDR? Might as well. Really, Mangucci's my number one. I love Mangucci. Interesting. Uh, Should we just dive deep into all your weird parasocial relationships with uh, magic <laughs> players? <laughs> I, I do have a bunch of weird ones. Let's start with Elite Spellbinder. Who wants to read the text on this card? I mean, he's your boyfriend. All right, fine. I'll read it. <laughs> All right, Elite Spellbinder is two and a white for a 3-1 flyer, creature, human cleric, and it has when Elite Spellbinder enters the battlefield, look at target opponent's hand. You may exile a non-land card from it. For as long as that card remains exiled, its owner may play it. A spell this way costs two more to cast. Frankly, kind of clunky rules text, but plays out exactly like the Mystery Booster card Frogkin Kidnapper, or very nearly exactly the same as the Mystery Booster card Frogkin Kidnapper which uh, is a card that I've been excited to see in Black Border. I kind of wish we got it in actual black and at two mana, but I'm still really, really excited about this card. Yeah, so the community gave this card a, a rating of 2.4 on average, and then 68% uh, of people that responded within the unrestricted category, which is generally what I'll just be referring to, um, are testing the card, which is pretty high. It's the, it's the second most popular card of the set. So 2.4 out of 3, right? And it looks like that's actually one of the highest ratings, right? Yeah, so um, the way it works is basically people will rate on a scale of 1 to 3, 1 being, you know, this card probably isn't going to make it in my cube, but I'll, but I'll try it out, and 3 being this card is a, is a staple, whatever you take that to mean for your own particular cube. And as a result of surveying from a lot of different kinds of cubes, it's very rare for cards to approach that sort of 3 marker. Um, I think Usher of the Fallen last set was wildly popular and had a rating of about 2.8. Um, and so 2.4 I think is, is pretty solid. I think many people are excited to, to test this card in their cubes. I haven't done as much testing with Strixhaven cards as I would like to have done at this point for the set interview, but it seems like maybe, Jet, you have. You said this card played out better than you thought it was going to? Yeah, it has. Um, the effect is just it's just pretty brutal. Um, and I think that's something that you sort of expect, but it's sort of hard, at least it was hard for me to gauge how different this is from something like, you know, like Brain Maggot, where it actually takes the card and then you have to remove the, the creature. I think the fact that... You can remove Elite Spellbinder and the tax still exists is a is a pretty important part of this card. And so, for example, I was never on Frogkin Kidnapper, despite I consider myself able to test that card, but I didn't think it was particularly good. As a result of playing this card and seeing how annoying it has been, I'm definitely going to go back in and test that card. Yeah, it, it's the, the exact combination of... I love proactive disruption, like hand hate and that kind of stuff is really exciting to me. And... The fact that it's not a hard effect, right? It's not like you can't cast this spell. I'm I'm not really into like meddling mage style effects as much in cube environments because it's like it basically says, all right, well, if you want to keep doing your game plan, now you have to find an answer to this meddling mage, or you can't continue or whatever. And here, you know, this is a, a softer effect where it's it's gonna be it's never gonna be a hard close of the door, right? I mean, I guess it might be on like a six or seven mana spell. You just name their, you know, Karn liberated in their hand. Are they ever gonna get to nine mana? Probably not. The fact that it's a soft tax is it fits right in right in exactly what I like about these kinds of cards. And people have compared it certainly to the brain maggots of the world, and that it is a creature with a body and it has some hand disruption. But very importantly for me, the tax is not contingent on this body sticking around, which means you get to actually get into combat with this creature, block, trade with it, not worry about them getting their card back essentially, because this tax just survives beyond that card going out of play. Also makes it a great blink target if you're into that kind of thing. 
I mean, also just a three power flyer is extremely relevant. What I actually want to compare this to, and I, we had a little bit of experience to play with it in your own cube, and I'll echo it played a lot better than I expected. And I think the reason is it's not, you know, a removal spell. It's not a thought seize where I'm just removing your combo piece. It really plays as a tempo card. Yeah. Uh, and and that's honestly how you want to play thought seize or these hand hate uh, cards fairly often. But you sort of feel obligated, like, well, I really kind of want to take this expensive card that's going to be the backbone of your, your game plan. But just saying, no, I'm just going to ruin your next turn. You're not yep. going to be able to cast your four drop or your three drop. Uh, and now, at the same time, I'm going to be able to put a lot of pressure on you with my powerful flyer. Uh, it just adds up to a pretty fun card to play with. Yeah, I'm into this. You said it played well in our testing, but if I recall, didn't I disfigure it every time you cast it in response to the trigger? Yeah, but you know, just <laughs> I feel I like mean, just, that's fine. I feel like I just mean... when you play with a card and just like seeing it in your hand and sort of ideating right. these are how I expect it to be able to play out in this game still gives you such a clearer perspective sure. than just thinking about it in the abstract. Which like you should be able to do that in the abstract, but I just think it really is hard to. Yeah, we talked about this in our, our testing episode, which we recorded. After the call time set release, we talked about just the value of playtesting cards and what it means. And yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Just being in a real game, looking at the card in your hand and thinking like, hmm, what's this going to do? Totally changes your perspective on things. That's hard to imagine. Yeah, I'm really excited about this card. I I hope we get more of this kind of effect in white because it's exactly what I want my white cards to do in my own cube. I hope it doesn't come at the cost of black still getting this effect too. So I guess we'll see as time goes on. As a, as a fun fact, actually, I think PDDR um, wanted to add Flash to it, uh, but oh wizards, my goodness wizards gracious. would not let PV. him. <laughs> PV, you dirty... Oof, relationship ended with PV. That's, that's too harsh. I can't, I I'm think not sure he, if he can be my magic boyfriend anymore. He actually he submitted exactly this card to Wizards, and they said, yeah, this is great. And then later on, he was like, hey, can we add Flash? And they're like, yeah, no, we can't do that. <laughs> this, is, this is negotiation 101. You always got to start higher because you're going to come to some middle ground. So you should have started with Flash. You with, yeah, Flash and Trample. And Life Trample. 3-1 <laughs> flying Trample Flash in, in white. I don't know. It's the first cute. It's apparently my favorite keyword. <laughs> oh, Trample. Menace. Menace would have been good. Yeah, this card is great. I think it'll probably be... I mean, it, it is, according to the survey, the most popular white card, and I expect it to be fast-forward, you know, six months, a year, two years from now, still the card that we see in the most cubes floating around, just because powerful ability. I think it'll become a kind of iconic card because it's got PV's face on it, and I expect it to see play in some formats, so I'm into it. Really like the card. Uh, our next one is Leonin Lightscribe, which is... One and a white for a 2-2 with Magecraft, which triggers whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell. Uh, and when that happens, creatures you control get plus one, plus one until the end of turn. This garnered an average rating of, of 1.9 from the cube community, which is fairly mediocre. I think a lot of people expect this to not survive testing. Uh, and then it got, um, the number of people testing it is, is about 20% uh, of respondents which is a little lower uh, than I expected. I think the community is more lukewarm on this than I um, had initially expected people to be. I think this is a classic example of people kind of getting a little bit distracted by the ability on the card because it, most people's white sections in most cubes of our respondents and of the community at large, not full of an abundance of incident sorcery spells. This is really the first time we've seen, aside from some prowess stuff in, in cons block, this is really the first time we've seen a focus on instants and sorceries in white with this set, because this set is all about instants and sorceries, so every color got to care about it in a specific way. Given that, I think most people don't think of this as core to white's identity, and as a byproduct or overlooking just how powerful this card is, kind of in isolation, even if you're not playing a like spells matter kind of deck, right? Like a 2-2 that 
it has effectively prowess. It gives everything else prowess, you know, more or less. Uh, I think is is a very powerful card that I, I'm really excited to play with in my own cube personally. Yeah, I think this card is extremely powerful. Like giving your whole team prowess is so so powerful. Even if you just have one or two more creatures, it's like oh. First of all, your opponents can have a really hard time blocking, but then if they don't block, or you're just stacking a lightning bolt onto every one of your spells, like, and the fact that the floor is really, really high uh, makes this card very appealing to me in terms of power level. Yeah, the high floor, I think, is, is very, very key compared to other Magecraft cards, which we will get to later on in this discussion. What do you think of this card, Jedi? Are you testing in your own cube? I am not, but now I'm starting to think that I potentially should. Um, I, I think, yeah, for me, it's, it's not really what I envision white doing in my cube but i think upon some more reflection well, attacking with creatures with many small creatures is not yeah what white it's be doing yeah it's actually reanimator so i mean no. white reanimator is a thing in yeah. some, in some uh, medium powered cubes you get the four mana white reanimation spells yeah i think it's it's mostly for me just envisioning how often does this trigger and the answer is probably more than you think and even when it doesn't the card is still fine and so I think you can also have some pretty disgusting turns with it, like, you know, remove your thing if you're playing white-black or even just mono-white and then get to swing in for a large chunk. It's probably better than I initially thought, to be honest. I wonder if this card, this may be crazy, but I wonder if this card is actually more powerful than Monastery Mentor. I mean, you're going to have to go ahead and define power, buddy, but so far you're, you're definitely flying a little close to the sun. <laughs> so, I mean... My, Do you my... expect this card to get restricted in Vintage? Fair point, but <laughs> okay. So it's obviously context dependent, but I feel like Monastery Mentor actually plays out a lot worse than I expected. We've actually talked about this in a lot of cubes where you're just not like setting up this turn where you're getting a whole bunch of tokens. Three mana is a steep cost, and if you just end up with like a three mana two two prowess, it's not helping you in a lot of situations. But this giving your whole team prowess, it means if you have you know a couple dinky like here's a Thopter I have from something, and here's some other creature that's kind of lost relevance. You play this, you don't even have to attack with it that turn. It's just like really activating your entire team rather than just being this all-in card that, you know, needs just to be supported on its own. Uh, I think that might make it a lot more powerful than, than people are thinking. I am really excited about this card, and I'm cautiously excited about the next card we're going to talk about, Clever Lumamancer, as well, because I love Monastery Mentor. I agree that it is nowhere near as powerful in cube environments, any kind of drafted environment, as it is in constructed, because it is a build-around, fundamentally, mm -hmm. and build-arounds are just better when you can build around them. But I really like that it is, I think, passable in, you know, a white aggressive deck that has some ways to trigger it, but also can serve as a, like, win condition in control, right? Like, right. You, you can play it in control. This doesn't have that flexibility, for sure. Right. You, you can play a Monastery Mentor in control, play it after a board wipe, and then hold up some counter magic and removal spells, and then just get your opponent dead by killing them with, with monk tokens. So that's why I like Mentor in my own environment. But it was kind of on an island prior to... Mm -hmm. Well, definitely prior to call time and, and prior to this set as well, where it didn't really go with any of the other white cards that I ran, at least explicitly, right? It was kind of like, this is the one thing it cares about instants and sorceries or non-creature spells in my entire white section. Everything else is mostly very efficient creatures for, you know, mid-range and, and aggro and then some removal spells for control. I'm going to be trying to, I'm going to test out a slightly more adventurous change in my white section that I've made in a long time with this set, which is going to lean pretty heavily into Magecraft, and the cards that are pulling me in are Lean and Light Scribe primarily, and I'm going to try Clever Lumamancer, which we'll talk about in a second, but I also think Clarion Spirit fits very well yeah. into into this deck as well, and when I start to imagine a deck that has something like Lumamancer, Clarion Spirit, Light Scribe, Monastery Mentor, and then the other thing I'm going to be doing is 
swapping out some of my more like middling replaceable white cards with slightly less powerful instants and sorceries that make tokens. Like I haven't, I've never run special procession in my cube. I'm going to try out special procession. I'm going to try out battle screech. I'm going to put raise the alarm back in, which I think are cards that are fine. If you're playing an aggressive white deck, uh, though they are kind of nombos Bethalia specifically, which is going to be interesting to have white be split that way. But I think slot really well into strategies that care about magecraft. And I'm curious to know, my ultimate goal is to push my white decks to be not just mono white. I think right now in my cube, most of my drafters that play the cube regularly have kind of decided that like if you're playing white, it should either be blue white control or mono white, right? There's no reason to play these like white two and three drops outside of mono white. I very rarely see anybody do like a white red aggro or a, you know, a white green mid range. It doesn't happen that often. And I think having these cards in here will be compelling reasons to go into a second color for your more proactive deck because of the huge payoff you get from having cheap cantrips, having cheap burn spells on top of these magecraft things. So that was a lot of blabbering, but that's probably the most fundamental change I'm planning on testing in my cube is adding a pretty substantial magecraft support to white to see if I can give it a little more depth and not just be kind of efficient creatures across the curve that can go in any proactive deck but tend to only go in the mono white deck so you're saying you're making your you're making your cube uh less boring <laughs> jet watch it buddy i I've, I've got my finger on the hang up button and i will i will do it um okay. no i don't think that button has been there <laughs> I, who's, I, think, I do think that it will I, there's something to be said for the I think we'll add depth to the draft portion and depth to the, like, viable decks. I don't expect it to make gameplay any more interesting per se, but we'll see. I don't know. It's an experiment. I haven't really, you know, for a long time, my goal was just to make it so bread and butter aggro decks were, like, performing consistently and I felt were very reliable and had all the tools they needed and I was confident in the densities of the effects for those decks. And, you know, I've had my cube for five-ish or five -ish years and I really only recently got to a point where I feel like, I feel pretty good about the aggro support in my cube. And so, of course, I'm going to throw it right out the window and I'm going to try and mess up white a little bit and give it a little more depth and uh, and texture. And we'll see what happens. I'll report back. I mean, people have been saying they want white to offer more options. And here's one. Yeah, I don't agree with those people, though. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I just I just like this effect. Let's talk about Lumamancer. I've already referenced it a couple times. This is one white mana for a zero one. I don't know. the. Let me look at the uh, type line here. Human wizard for a uh, for a human wizard, uh, and it has magecraft gets plus two plus two. So this is kind of like monastery swift spear, though I think quite a bit worse. Swift spear having the very solid floor of always having one power and having haste, I think is quite a bit better than this growing more quickly when you cast more spells. Here's here's what I'll compare this card to. I don't think this card's going to be good. Even in the mage crafty white deck I just described, I don't think it's going to be a particularly high performer there. The best thing I can I can compare it to is Step Links, right? Step Links is a zero one that gets plus two plus two when you play land, which in cubes without fetches, right? You have what fifteen ways to trigger it in your deck, fifteen lands in your aggro deck, probably fourteen maybe. So you've already got fifteen triggers for your Step Links in your deck. How many spells am I realistically going to have in a Magecraft white deck? I don't think 15. That sounds like way more than is, than is ever likely. And if you have fetch lands and stuff, obviously step lights can grow, you know, twice in one turn and become a 4-5. The same way this thing has kind of a, a high ceiling on its potential size. So I don't think it's going to be great because I don't actually think there's going to be enough ways to trigger it, even in decks that have a high density of instants and sorceries relative to the rest of 
the white decks in the field. But if you do have ways to trigger it, some reliably, what I am interested in this being is a one drop that has late game relevance because you can theoretically in a somewhat stalled board or a state where you're stuck for a little bit, wait to combine spells in a certain way that you trigger this enough times to attack through even pretty sizable blockers. And what I'll base this on is my experience playing with Blood Sky Berserker, which is the call time card that uh, you know gets up two plus one plus one counters when you cast your second spell each turn, which is a card that has really overperformed, I think. Every time I get to play that card in my cube, I'm really, really impressed by it and think it's kind of messed up. And the reason is because it's not too terribly difficult to sequence things so that you get to you know cast two spells on a turn. This is obviously a bit different, but I think there'll be opportunities where you'll be very glad to have this one drop instead of another one drop. Uh, the thing it loses for me, it, consistency, not being consistent in aggro is really rough. Uh, I think aggro is a deck that thrives on consistency. And so putting a, a one drop that might not be able to attack on turn two is a pretty huge cost. But I'm going to test it out very pessimistically. This is an example of a card I rated very lowly. I'm testing it because I'm curious and I want more signposts to get people into a white deck that cares about instants and sorceries but i don't think it's gonna last i think it's gonna be worse than step links yeah i'm really not excited about the the play patterns that this card offers even if the ceiling is very high and the idea of being like oh it's a one mana four five that sounds great but it, it just does like, sound great when you say it like that but if we say it a different way it's also a, a one mana zero one and and mm, the fact that you know la, 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 if we compare you. it to swift spear <laughs> i think that's a perfect comparison because swift spear has this threat of activation where you sometimes just attack into a two two and your opponent's like well i don't i can't really afford to block here so i'll just take one and that's great. Being like having the opportunity to still put pressure on your opponent while you're not having to execute this like backup plan gives you a lot of flexibility. Here, if they block, you're like, well, I guess I'm just going to use my mana in an awkward way because I have to cast this instant that I don't really need to use right now, uh, which I just think is going to lead to some awkward play patterns. Or they just don't block and say, sure, if you want to yeah, do damage yeah, to exactly. me, then, then it's... use your spell right now. And you're yeah. like, okay, cool. Well, I didn't get to, you know, you, you don't did get nothing. Because the, the power of Monastery Swift Spear is that the same spell in your hand can pose a very real threat of activation on every single turn because you never have to right. actually cash it until they block right and then when they block you get them with it here you, you just keep attacking with the zero that. one and you do no damage <laughs> like it's not gonna it's not gonna work so i don't think this card's actually very good actually i think people are a little too high on it honestly even though i am among the few testers i think the other people maybe should <laughs> reconsider a little bit of their uh their decision making to this point because i do think it'd be worse than steplings considerably worse than steplings which is a card i don't see right because that's pr often. not promoting you to like sequence things the wrong way it's like do you want to play your lands of course you do do you yeah. want to have fetch lands in your deck of course you do yeah and again you have 15 lands in most aggro decks or whatever you know 14 lands way more than i expect you're gonna have instant sorceries to trigger lumamancer so that's how I feel about the card. I'm trying it out because I think it's cool. I do think it has maybe cool constructed ramifications, but I don't think it's going to be great in most cubes that are not heavily themed. It's going to be a... I'm so excited for it in the combat trick cube. It's uh, moi, perfect. I agree with everything that's been said. I think both of you are pretty down on it. And that's kind of where I am at in my own cube. I will say, though, I think the way that the, the community or the people that are testing it feel is maybe a little bit informed um, by the, the constructions of their own cubes. So just for context, the, the community gave this an average rating of 2.3, but only about 10% of people are playing it. And actually, if you look at the cubes that are playing it, these cubes tend to be a lot lower to the ground. Um, and they tend to be cubes that, that focus a lot on cantrip redundancy, removal redundancy, where I think this is a card that, that shines um, a lot more than it might in other environments. Yeah, I guess my caveat to that is that I would definitely count my main cube among that style of cube in terms of cantrip density, removal density, I, I, and being very low to the ground, very low curving. And I still think it's going to be 
pretty buns, frankly. I think it's going to be buns, but I'm going to try it. Isn't your cube named the bun magic cube? Shouldn't it be buns? <laughs> okay, is, sure. Are buns good or bad? Touche. Buns is bad, like butts. Are butts bad? You don't want to be a butt. Hmm. Okay. I mean, butts are good overall. I'm glad we have them for various biological reasons. Should we talk about Professor of Symbology? Tell yeah. us all about it, Anthony. <laughs> uh, so Professor of Symbology, uh, if I can do it from memory, is a two-mana 2-1 two for one and a white. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you learn, which means you can draw a learn card from your sideboard, uh, or you can draw a card and discard a card. Or is it discard and draw? Discard and draw. Discard and draw. I still rummage. haven't seen anyone do that yet. <laughs> it's rummage, not loot. Is this just an opportunity for us to talk about learn in cube one more time? We, we talked about it a little bit on our mechanics review episode, Anthony, but Jet has not had a chance to to share his thoughts on learn as it pertains to cube. Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe worth mentioning. We also have people that will give comments when they fill out the survey. And so I've gotten the chance to go through a little bit of those and, and see the way that people are approaching learn and lesson in their cubes. And it's it's definitely a mix. So some people are choosing to give drafters free access to any lesson card that they want after the draft. So basically treating them like basic lands, I think in which case learn cards get substantially more powerful. This becomes a, a one yeah, in a card is messed up. For a two one like draw card. Much better um, than an Elvish Visionary. It's extremely messed up if that's yeah, the case. Very, very good. And so I've seen a lot of people um, take that approach uh, and they tend to rate the card very highly. And then there are also a number of people that are actually trying out a learn and, and lesson package like in the cube itself where you have to draft both, in which case I think this card goes down pretty significantly depending on the, the cube environment. Well, it's funny. I mean, the floor in this card is not even that awful. I mean, the floor being you have no lessons, you discard mm -hmm. and draw just as a way to do more stuff and have a cheap body in the early game if you want, because it is a may. You don't have to do either if you don't want to, right? I believe so. You're not forced to rummage. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think if I had a graveyard-focused cube and I was looking for discard outlets in white, this seems like a very appealing discard outlet to me and the fact that it's a fine body, it's only two mana to get something into the yard, and it draws me a card. So this, I think, could see a home in as an effect that white has previously had very little of, which is, you know, discard outlets. I think this could see a home in graveyard-focused cubes just on that fact alone. And I do think that, you know, Anthony had a really good point, I thought, when we talked about Learn on our mechanics episode, which is that even without that many learn cards, I I think people, because of the very seemingly parasitic nature of this mechanic, are like, oh, if I'm not like going to include you know, a whole lesson theme in my cube, then it's not worth running. I think this card and a couple other learn cards, along with just a handful of the most appealing lessons for your environment, makes for a very interesting build-your-own combo. And again, it's, it's kind of in the category in the draft of something like a Kiki twin combo where you have to draft these two specific cards that might not do a lot without the other ones, theoretically. But then in the actual games, you just have to draw your learn card. You don't have to draw your lesson. And so it plays out sort of much less narrowly. So Right. So say you just had like the inkling summoning. Not a card you're super excited about, but if you draft those two cards together, you draft a two mana two one that draws you a three mana two one flyer. It's like kind of like more like a build your own Thraben Inspector than it is uh <laughs> than a, than a karma that, that wins the game on the spot, you mean? Exactly, yeah. But saying, like, building towards a very good card, I, th I think I is mean, that still... would be a really strong card. Like, yeah. if this card just said, you know, always draw Inkling Summoning, like, I'd probably play it. Like, yeah. just a two-mana two-one that draws me a card and the card is fine. Like, that's really great, I think. So, so yeah, I don't know. I, I'm still a little bit surprised to see so many people talking about learning Lesson in Cube as a, you either have to be all in or not do it at all. It's like, I think you could totally just include yeah. a couple of these cards and it would 
be no more narrow than a lot of other less explicit synergies that are already present in many people's cubes. I think like even as few as maybe like ten lessons in a three sixty oh, yeah, card cube. Even less, with, I would say. Three Five. or four learn cards. Yeah. I mean that's like a that's a pretty big cost in terms of like your cube slots though, right? Well, it depends yeah. how much you want to play those cards Draft as a baseline, backs. right? Like um I some of the lessons I think are some of the more powerful lessons I think are totally serviceable potentially and depending on the power level of a cube. So right. yeah, it, it depends it depends on everything, right? But I, I just think that uh People, especially with, with less power-focused cubes that are not worried about, like, making every single slot be the most powerful effect available for that particular position, not ruling out this mechanic entirely as you have to be pot-committed for it to make any sense. Because, like, Mascot Exhibition is a powerful card that, if when, yeah. you, when you can draw it at will, you know, I, I could see that being very appealing in a cube that... If I if I had a, this card in my cube and I had either Inkling Summoning or Mascot Exhibition, like that card is insane. If I could draw either of those two cards whenever I play my two one, like that's yeah. really really nuts. So I don't. Know, I think it could totally get there for people. And yeah, I think if you are going this direction of creating a sort of like lesson board where everyone has access to a bunch of them, then obviously this is going to be a staple. Like cheap cards that are going to get that theme rolling quickly uh, is going to be something you're interested in. All right, this next card. I'm not going to say who put it on the list, but do you want to read it, Anthony? Uh, sure, I'll read it. I have to go to a different place because it doesn't make it onto the list of cards on the website because not enough people like it. <laughs> so <laughs> I think Thunderous Orator is, <laughs> is a very interesting uh, card for cube. So it's, again, a 2-mana two 2-1 two for 1 and a white. It's not 2-1. Uh, sorry, 2-mana 2-2. Two two. <laughs> it's got Vigilance, and whenever it attacks, it gains Flying, First Strike, Double Strike, Death Touch, Indestructible, Lifelink, Menace, and Trample, if you control another creature with one of those abilities, which I think even in higher powered cubes, I think this is being a little bit underrated. Uh, if you have like, who knows, this random spirit token from your clarion spirit or your battle screech or whatever, a two mana two two flyer is a very strong card. Vigilance too, and it always has vigilance. Mm -hmm. The and the ceiling is extremely high if you can sort of chain together a whole bunch of, of abilities. What I really like about it is it's this kind of like small little tweak to the draft where you have this thunderous order. It's like a C plus in your draft. Uh, it then just makes you pay attention a little bit to the keywords that you're drafting and think, oh, well, it's actually a little bit better for me to have this one creature that has menace because it has this minor upside, uh, which is the kind of build around that I look look for as much as possible uh, when thinking about the way that my cubes are going to be drafted. Not to derail this too much, but I got okay. I got to ask because it's it's now front of mind for me. We talked on a recent episode about the kinds of decisions and which kinds of complex decisions are interesting to make, like strategic complicated decisions, and which kinds of decisions are more like bookkeeping homework mm -hmm. to make, right? Like I have sure. to look at this entire board and figure out, you know, what my exact attacks are and like, you know, count the cards in your library to figure out if I can mail you out. These kinds of things where it's like you should pay attention to it because it'll up your win percentage. But it's not strategically interesting to do so. It's just like this little thing you have to keep track of. Does this border on that for you? Because I look at this and you say like, oh, it like opens up my draft picks because now I can like care about these keyword abilities. To me, this little tiny thing and the possibility of drawing Thunderous Order along with my, I don't know, that uh, that white red guy from Guilds of Ravnica that has all the abilities. The one one with all the abilities for two mana. Yeah, we all know what you mean. Yeah, you all know the one I'm talking <laughs> Swift about. Swift Blade Vindicator. So there you go. You got it. Swift Blade Vindicator. The thought of like keeping track of this so that I might in a game possibly draw the two of these things and put that little tiny combo together to get that 10% edge, that starts to feel to me like the kind of complexity that is not fun to care about. Interesting. I definitely feel the opposite. I feel like this is a really interesting kind of complexity because it's not like, oh, I have to keep counting this thing and it's usually not going to matter. It's really, 
Uh, it's nice that it's got a good floor. Like it's, That's really the critical part, is it's not like, oh, this card is unplayable unless I get ABC. If you're specifically in an environment where it's like, this is a card I'm probably going to play. Again, like it's a C plus, it's going to be fine. Then it just lets you, like when you're making your picks, just have another opportunity to just sort of influence those decisions, which I don't feel like it falls in that homeworky category. Do you think it ever hits that point, though? I'm just imagining I have a Thunderous Order, I have a couple Mutate cards, and I got to watch out for having not too many humans. I have, that's you know, cards fair. that care about you know, colors of cards, so I got to, like, watch this hybrid card because it's two colors. Like, I, I, at some point, I do think the, like, many-layered net of little tiny synergies can become like, a, oh, gosh, I don't know. I'm just going to take the basic card because I don't want to think about At which... the same point, I don't feel like this feels overwhelming like some of those other things where sure. it's like you can care about that a little bit, but you're never going to feel like punished because you forgot to take a certain keyword hey ability. i'm the guy over here saying I'm, oh, i always feel punished for not drafting synergy stuff in these cubes because i get so confused and overwhelmed i just take removal and then i lose yeah the number of times that i have drafted stoneforge mystic and then not picked up any equipment means that this card is too big brain for me <laughs> <laughs> i mean that is fair there's like these kinds of small decisions in it that where we're talking about your pick order changes as you're moving through a draft, and some of them are pretty broad. Like, oh, I'm clearly in an ad- aggressive deck, so I want to favor cheaper spells, right? And then you're talking about these sort of more A-B things where it's like, yeah, Stoneforge Mystic really kind of does nothing unless you God, get this what if Stoneforge thing? Mystic had or rummage <laughs> had tacked on the learn. end? <laughs> no, no, no. Just, you know, find an equipment or instead you can rummage. That'd be pretty good. That'd be so great. Um, I love cards that have, non- that have good non-fail cases. Like, this is, I want more of this stuff. Andy but is I a don't simp feel for like... modality. It's true. I am. I don't feel I'm like hard this falls... simping for modes over here. <laughs> I don't think this falls in the category of like, oh, okay, I've drafted ten cards so far, and each of those has given me assignment where I need to like make sure I tick these ten boxes before the draft ends. It just gives you a little bit of opportunity to care about something if you want to, and if you don't, don't draft it. <laughs> I'm gonna talk about the next card, which is another card you added to the list, Anthony. But this card is gonna be a staple of the combat trick cube for years to come. This is Mavinda, Students' Advocate, and it's two and a white for a legendary creature, Bird Advisor. It's a 2-3 flyer. Boy, I'm going to have to read this ability, aren't I? <laughs> it has an activated <laughs> ability. Zero. You may cast a target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard this turn. If that spell doesn't target a creature you control, it costs eight generic mana more to cast this way. <laughs> if that spell we put to your graveyard, exile it instead. Activate this ability only once each turn. So, a very complicated way of saying uh, you may flashback one instant or sorcery from your graveyard every turn that targets a creature you control because you're not going to pay eight in almost any drafted environment. I mean, maybe in Commander you can start doing some funky stuff, make infinite mana and go off or something. But in drafted environments, that eight is basically, you can't do that. So Did, this... they, word it, did they word it this way because like you can't like check to see if it's targeting a creature before you cast it? Like, Is there any way to make this card cleaner? Oh, that's interesting. Um, like they're just what they, it would be like a huge rules overhaul to. Uh, I don't get magic don't, rules I, really. I, I don't know enough about the rules to to weigh on that, but I, I would totally believe that. I and assume, that's very funny to me. I assume they tried to make it as clean as possible, or there's some flavor thing I'm unaware of with this eight. I mean, I don't isn't know. the flavor thing like, hey, you want to help me get strong? Sure, she's your advocate. Hey, you want to help me kill that guy? You I gotta will, pay eight dollars. Really have, have to bribe the teacher. <laughs> Uh, this card's really cool, I think. Uh, I'm excited about it for the combat trick cube, like I said, for obvious reasons. Just getting a, a basically a cast for combat tricks on a 3-mana 2-3 flyer in white is pretty sick. But outside of that, outside of having a cube that really has a deep heroic theme or something, I don't see this being 
relevant. So it does also work uh, with fight spells and distributed damage spells. If you want to cast an arc lightning, for example, you can definitely ping one of your creatures for one. That's true, but those are some small edges that I wouldn't expect in the average cube to matter. My kind of edges. <laughs> he loves a small edge. Uh, one other thing I'd say about Mavinda, just I love bringing up the vanilla test. We have a brand new opportunity. I feel like a lot of people saw this card and they were like, eight mana, that's ridiculous. I can never pay that. This card is bad. I think you should just shortcut that to, like you said, Andy, this this effect Sharpie does not exist. Sharpie out, it yeah. out. Uh, don't get distracted by the eight mana sounding overwhelming. It just lets you cast things that uh, target your own creature. Mm-hmm. And it's 2-3 flyer for 3, which is fine on the vanilla test. Oh, it's uh, quite good. Yeah. All right, next up we've got Pillar Drop Rescuer. So this is a 5-mana 2-2 for 4 and a white. Uh, it flies. When it enters the battlefield, you return a creature card with convert, uh, with mana value 3 or less from your graveyard to your hand. Oh, God. Uh, you almost I... revealed that you're a magic boomer. <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing magic for more than two months. You know now. I think this card's great. I've been, uh, I actually really enjoy the card. You're going to have to help me with this one. It's one of the conspiracy, or not conspiracy, the voting cards that lets. Uh, oh, yeah. The one from, uh, you see in Peasant Cubes all the time, mm-hmm. the five mana, three, three, grave five mana, digger three, three, card f- with grave digger. Council. I'll figure it out while you're talking. And I just really enjoy playing with that card because it's a grave digger, but it flies and evasion is really important in a lot of lower powered cubes. This is a little bit worse because it has that lower power and restriction on only getting back small things, but I still think this card plays out really well, and I'm excited to, to play with it. Custody Squire. Custody Squire. And I hate that card because the voting mechanic is so stupid. My will of the Council is not good in two-player. It's real bad. I remember two Christmases ago, we always have a Christmas wacky draft, and I had the opportunity to draft one of these in a you know two-player limited format. And the first time I cast it, I'm like, uh, I show I it to my this. opponent. What do you vote for? <laughs> I did that thing, and she was like, I vote for that other thing, and I was like, No, you don't. I'm sorry, but don't do like. I, I can't actually commit to. I'm sorry for not just shortcutting to rules this for lawyering you. you so hard uh, right now. Yeah. Are you gonna test this in your own cube? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I think it's definitely gonna be a C minus. Maybe maybe it won't get there in the end, but uh, I think it's gonna play okay. Excuse me. We use the one to three scale here. What is the C minus nonsense? Well, but that's a sounds uh, like an evil scale context. that other people might use. <laughs> <laughs> Some sort of awful podcast. Uh, we got two more Anthony cards here. Anthony, let's go fast, fast, fast. We're already forty seven minutes oh, in. No. We only talked about white so far. So Holy I don't moly. think detention vortex is an Anthony card. I think this is an Andy card. Uh, it's a one mana enchantment. Enchant a non land permanent. It can't attack, it can't block, its activated abilities cannot be activated, but any player can pay three mana to, or sorry, only the uh, your opponent can pay three mana to destroy this effect. This actually is an Andy card because it's this like tempo play mm-hmm. with attacks that allows you, gives your opponents options, right? Do I want to spend my mana to get rid of this as opposed to, like, so much removal just takes options away from your opponent, which is good, and obviously I play a lot of removal, but I do really like this kind of removal that affects these things. I'll use this opportunity to shout out what I think is a much better card that not a lot of people know, which is a card called Oppressive Raise. This oh, is yeah. one might mana for an enchantment aura, enchant creature. It says enchant creature can't attack or block when it's controlled plays three, and the same goes for activating abilities of the enchanted creature. So basically it's a you know a one mana get rid of this card unless they pay three to attack or block or activate its abilities, which is a card I have come so close to testing in my cube and never quite found a slot for and probably will never do that because they keep printing more cards. They don't print less cards, so I don't think I'm ever going to work backwards and, and find a place for it. But I think it's a really powerful removal in proactive decks in a similar way to the to the card, the way the Tension Vortex is. Just probably not quite flexible enough. You know, like, it's very powerful if you're playing aggro, but 
not really that great in control, I don't think. I don't think you can really afford this kind of soft removal in control super often. I'm actually surprised this one also didn't make the cutoff to have a statistically relevant rating. Is that correct? Yeah, it didn't have over seven testers. I think people are underrating this card a little bit. Like the fact that it can hit planeswalkers, it can hit uh, mana rocks. Like it has a lot of flexibility. Like you hit somebody's soul ring with this, they are not going to be able to pay three very easily. Or, you know, that's not going to be as great strategy. And again, being able to hit Planeswalkers, I think this is actually an extremely efficient card. It's close to me. It really is. It's similar to Oppressive Rays. I think Oppressive Rays is probably a little better, but what gets me in the end is just the, just how poor it is if you are playing the control strategy. And I want all my removal to be good in control and good in aggro, and this being just really good when you're proactive That's uh, definitely true. is something that I think is pretty limiting. One more white card, and it's the one that got people all mad. Uh, are you mad about Secret Rendezvous? I don't care. You and target opponent each draw three cards for three mana. I am definitely, definitely not mad about it. I think okay. people were mad because... Did, did, did Mark Rosewater say in his preview that it was a white card that said you draw three cards and everyone was like so excited and then it turned yep. out that it also made your opponent draw three cards? That's <laughs> people were salty about it. Mars baiting people again. I think this card's cool. It's fine. I'm not going to play it in anything, but I'm glad it exists. I, I like... Here's what I'll say. I don't play much EDH, but in EDH, I really like the you and target opponent do a thing kinds of cards, mm -hmm. uh, where it's not group hug so much as like, you know, let's all gang up on this person that's, you know, winning by too much. I'm glad the card exists. I think people should not be mad about it. Everyone should just chill out. It's just a card game, you know? Stop it. Get some help. You're telling magic right. players to chill out? I know. Like, <laughs> turns out some things matter more than magic. Hard to understand. I, I know. All right. Secret Rendezvous. We don't care. Anything else on white, friends, before we move on to blue? Before we spend another 50 minutes on blue cards? Before we start talking about a card and then go down a large, detailed theory design diatribe that uh, detracts us for a while. <laughs> Actually, I think we're about to do that. <laughs> so our first blue card is Multiple Choice, which um, is the, the very modal blue card, uh, which the cube community gave an average rating of 1.8, and 20% of respondents um, are playing it. So just for context, it's X and a blue for a sorcery. Um, if X is one, you scry one the draw card. If X is two, you choose a player. They return a creature they control to their owner's hand. So like a weird sacrifice Big bounce. Big yikes. Yeah. If X is three, create a 4-4 four, four creature token, 4-4 four, four with flying. And then if X is four or more, uh, do all of the above. So Andy is a simp for modality, as we've already discussed. How do, you, how do you go about evaluating this card? I don't like this card i don't like it in terms all right of... good we're picking up the pace <laughs> here's the thing I, I don't think it's particularly powerful i don't like it from a design perspective either because yes it is modality but it's like the clunkiest possible kind of modality where you just kind of stapled four cards together right. it's just like a menu it's not like flexibility right and so it's like it doesn't really offer me any choices i i mean i guess if i only have four mana so i can't do the mode where i get to do all of the options then i do have you know, three options of spells I can cast. It might be better to allow my opponent to return a creature of their choice to their hand, which I got to say is an awful, awful bounce spell. <laughs> that is so bad. Uh, really, really bad for three mana. The thing that made me think about it a little bit was if this had been an instant, I could see this being much, much, much more appealing. I mean, obviously, instants are way more powerful than sorceries. And the thing that really gets me here is I'm not ever in my blue decks trying to spend two or three or four or even five mana to like i mean at, at the five mana point where you're getting to do all this stuff and making a big four four 
that's committing to the board enough that maybe it's worth it. But I just can't afford to do any of these cheaper things at sorcery speed in my environment without. I, I got to hold up counter magic. I got to have removal ready. I got to be you know ramping up to my board wipe or something. I can't afford to be doing this really slow, non-board impactful stuff on the two and three mana modes of multiple choice. So as far as I'm concerned, those kind of modes, like the two mana mode is like a absolute fail case, like, uh, you know, slightly better than cycling. And then the, the bounce mode, I think is pretty awful. And the like four, four is fine. And then once you get to all five, it's interesting. Um, Zolfix compared this to Muldrifter on the discord, which I thought was an interesting comparison. When you look at Muldrifter, which people, you know, it's divination or it's a five mana two two. It draws two cards. I think in the five mana mode, this is much better than Muldrifter, and so that's kind of cool. Uh, the three mana mode, it's much worse. Uh, but you, you kind of have to compare the two mana mode of this to Muldrifter, which is still worse, but more comparable in that it actually generates card advantage for a little amount of mana. I think it's actually probably better than Muldrifter, and that may be a hot take. People might might disagree with that. But I have not been on Muldrifter for some time in my cube for the same reason. I just I'm not going to play a divination. I'm not going to play a sorcery. It just, it's not enough impact at sorcery speed in my own environment. My environment's too fast these days. Yeah, I think two mana scry one draw a card is actually pretty similar to three mana draw two in terms of power level. And I, I almost yeah, I think, think so. the, the two mana uh, mode is even a little bit more powerful in a lot of cubes. Yeah, in a lot of places, you really only... You're like only card gonna... selection is almost as important as that raw card advantage. Right. I think in most circumstances where you're playing a Muldrifter, you are, unless you're like evoking it to then ephemerate or some like nonsense like that, I think you're really Ooh, only nonsense. ever evoking it if you need to hit more land drops. Yeah. Like uh, if, if you have any chance of gaining to five mana, you are not going to just, you know, draw two cards uh, and, and do nothing else. So the fact that this draw card option is only two mana gives it a better fail case, right? If you're trying to find your lands... You'd rather have the two mana mode of this than a, a three mana divination, but yeah, I just I'm not on this kind of modality. This like this doesn't feel like this actually gives me choices. It's like a long card with lots of rules text and lots of different modes, but they're not the kind of modes I like. Like compare this to Shark Typhoon, and it's no contest for me. Shark Typhoon, dead simple, does the same thing at every mana cost, but that gives me lots of choices for when I want to play this. Do I want to just cycle early to find a land? Do I want to trade off with something small in the mid game in combat? Do I want to wait to the end and have it as a finisher? And here it's like basically hold out until you get to do the really good mode. Or you, if you absolutely have to suffer one of the much, much more poor overcosted modes. Yeah. This really does feel like homework, uh, but I think that's a flavor win, right? I, I mean, sure. It's a, it's a set about school. So I'm, I'm glad that this feels like homework, I guess. What do you think about this card jet? Uh, yeah, I'm putting pretty much on the on the same level. Um, I think just the fact that it's so restrictive in its modality means that its modality is not really real. Um, I mean, I think for a lot of modal spells, you are it's an interesting decision because you are um, you can be equally interested in a few different options depending on the board state. But here, I don't think you're ever really happy to cast any of them. Then I think even sometimes for five mana, you like won't be particularly happy. Um, and so it just doesn't quite get there for me. Yeah, this is like a card that somebody would have designed if they knew I liked modal cards but had no idea why. And they were like, yeah, you'll like this, right? It's got, it's got modes. And it's like, well, kind of missed the spirit of what I like about modal cards with multiple choice. Zolfax's hot take. My hot take is that Wizards has finally found their stride in terms of making cards that are cool and flashy, but still just a little notch below the more uh, powerful and optimized options. So, for example, we have... Multiple choice, a card that I'm testing simply because I really enjoy the many options that it gives and that mainly it's either a 2 mana cantrip or a 5 mana 4-4 four, four bouncy creature and draw a card. Another card on that vein is uh, Paradox Zone, 
which again cool and flashy but at the same time it's comparable to five mana walkers in the sense that it creates a uh, threat every turn and it snowballs in a similar manner but it's a lot harder to deal with this next one is a strict upgrade over a somewhat iconic card frost trickster it's just a flying frost lynx so two and a blue for a two two that enters the battlefield freezes down an opponent's creature and it's got flying now pretty pushed and it looks like pauper and peasant cubers are quite excited about it i think a lot of the pauper and peasant cubers were on frost links already so pretty enthusiastically doing this if you're if you're playing a power restricted pauper or peasant cube yeah i don't I follow just, limited at all has this been doing quite well there it does well i think it's a little bit less uh bonkers than it looks at first because the the format is pretty grindy there's lots of ways to uh, just like do huge things so Still good, not totally busted. I have seen people complain that it's at common just because you could get quite a few mm -hmm. of them and then get into this dumb situation where, you know, you're not winning, but you're also not losing because you just keep freezing down your opponent's thing turn after turn, playing Frost Trickster after Frost Trickster. So, yeah, I think it's probably quite good and limited, but doesn't sound like it's huge bomb at common. At In least. a lot of formats, I think it would be extremely uh, effective. Yeah, more proactive, faster formats, this would be pretty messed up. But I really like this card. I think that Frost Trickster is like a uh, sorry, uh, Frost Links is a really nice design. It sort of does what it says. It enables this sort of tempo plan. But in a lot of environments, it just doesn't actually function as well as you want it to because it doesn't actually let you force through damage as much. Uh, so this, you know, giving you a, a one good attack and then continuing to be able to push through some damage with the flying uh, adds up to something that I think is actually more able to support the the kind of uh, archetype that it's advertising. I think it's interesting for us to compare this briefly to Mana War, because I think, I at least have this moment in my magic history where I was like, oh, well, you know, the best, like, tempo creatures are the ones that bounce things back to your opponent's hand, make them recast them, that's, like, the best. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, you have the worst versions, which is, like, the freeze down you get from Frost Lynx or Core Hook Master. But actually, there's, like, quite a few situations where you'd much rather just freeze down your opponent's thing than bounce it back to their hand. If they have a relevant end of the battlefield ability... That can come up. Also, you bounce it back to their hand. It's going to be able to block next turn if right. they just recast it. Here, this actually gives you two turns. Here you get two attack. turns of this of this this particular card not blocking, uh, which can be very relevant depending on what the thing you're tapping down is. So, given that this has flying stapled on top of it, I have not been on Mana War for for some time. I I not, my blue decks are not doing the thing that Mana War is going to enable. For people that are playing tempo decks, do you think this is more or less powerful than a Mana War? It's a really interesting question. Uh, I think it's similar. I would say play them both i guess maybe i should say specifically the cop out answer i, I do oh, think that course. a lot of people are playing mana war in cubes that support blink and they're more often than not or sometimes blinking their own things and that flexibility of mana war is helpful so that's uh, true yeah so i think maybe comparing it to exclusion mage is better that's the one that limits to your opponent yeah. stuff right so i don't know i think this might be better in those kind of tempo builds flying is huge for tempo decks because oftentimes you can attack through the skies even if the ground is clogged up and the fact that you get to again you're not making them spend that mana again, which is a big downside. But the upsides are that you don't give them an opportunity to re-trigger the battlefield abilities, and you don't give them an opportunity to block with that thing next turn by recasting it. It will still be tapped down. So, I don't know. I think people should be aware of that distinction between those abilities. They're not... As, as I once thought that they were just clearly like, oh, bouncing is better, and tapping down is, is a worse version of bouncing, they actually have very different applications, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you want to talk about Curate? Cantrips. Of course Andy's going to talk about Curate. I can talk about it if you want. Uh, this is one in a blue for an instant. Look at the top two cards of your library. Put any number of them into your graveyard and the rest back on top of your library. In any order, draw a card. So 
a cantrip, a decent cantrip. I, this is a good opportunity for me to say that I basically don't touch anything above one mana for pure cantrips anymore. Impulse is the very last one that I'm on still because I found that mana efficiency is so, 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 so important to cantrips that I would almost always take, you know, a much less good effect for less mana as long as it always results in me drawing one card, as long as it's a one for one then I will take uh, Abundant Selection. And so Curate was not really on my radar. I think if you're still playing two mana cantrips like Anticipate and, you know, the Ilk, then this is a very appealing option. The fact that it does kind of dig three deep while fueling your graveyard is very, is, is different. We haven't seen yeah. cards that really do that. Um, the best one, I, the closest one I can think of is Strategic Planning, right? Which says you can put... Uh, there's also the Split card, Discovery yeah, I mean, Dispersal. Yeah, that one's, that one's really cool. The one that lets you surveil one and then draw a card. Yeah, strategic planning is very similar. Look at the top three cards of your library, one into your hand and the rest into your graveyard, which gives you a little more information, but it is sorcery speed. So I like this over strategic planning if you're playing cards like that in your cube. Though, if you are into the cantrip density thing and you have been lamenting the lack of quote-unquote good cantrips at one mana, I would encourage you to try out some of the much, much, much less appealing and less common one mana cantrips over some of the two mana options. Like, Try out a card like Quicken, for example, which is a card I'm going to be testing on my own cube. Uh, just draws a card, but also makes the next sorcery you can cast at instant speed. So it's got this late game relevance that might might come up sometimes. But just that one mana is so important for finding early land drops, for sequencing plays, being able to, on turn three, cast your cantrip and play a two drop. Uh, huge, 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 huge. Way, way different than having a two mana cantrip, I think. And for triggering Magecraft. And for triggering all those cards that care about casting stuff. So, yeah, I just basically like the whole Xerox thing that theory where you have a bunch of cantrip density and that allows you to cut your lands a little bit and uh really up the density of relevant spells in your deck i think that works best the cheaper the cantrips are even if on paper it seems like oh man well this is clearly worth one extra mana for these three cards worth of selection i don't actually think on power level it is in most environments now i think these cards get better the slower an environment is the slower an environment is i think the more you want higher mana cantrips that provide selection because what often matters in slower formats is getting the right cards into play getting like the right value and stumbling on pure efficiency is is punished much less but in faster formats like the one i'm trying to cultivate in my main cube i'm just on lower cmc lower mana value cantrips as much as possible and therefore i'm not going to touch curate myself well, I'm really excited about this card. I, I, it is less efficient, but in a lower-powered cube, I think the fact that it is an instant, it does let you interact with your graveyard, and it digs quite deep. All that adds up to a card that I think has just a lot of opportunity for good play patterns. Yeah, and in terms of the, the community's ratings, the community gives it an average rating of 2.1, and actually 20% of respondents are testing it, which is higher than I expected, given what, what Andy said previously about the card. And I think a lot of it is these slower environments that are really interested in a cantrip um, that is instant speed and also fuels the graveyard. Yeah, it, it definitely, in a very small way, fits into a lot of the archetypal cubes. Like, the mm -hmm. fact that it does fuel the graveyard is going to make it appealing to a lot of people that, you know, wouldn't care about something like uh, Omen of the Sea because they don't have an Enchantments Matter theme and they don't see that as contributing to the archetypes that their cube is trying to support. Uh, yeah, I think it's worth noting that Curate being tested by a similar number of designers as Multiple Choice and rated more highly, which I think is correct. I think this card is better than Multiple Choice. So, yeah, I think I think it makes sense. Why is Resculpt crossed out? Oh, we don't have to talk about it. It's a bad card. <laughs> All right, moving on. I want to talk about Tempted by the Orik as our last card for the blue section. Relax. Have an Orik. <laughs> the, 
No one's going to get that reference. <laughs> I did not get that reference. No one's going to get that reference, and I can't put it in audio either. So people are just going to have to – if you get the reference, uh, tweet at us and tell us you got the reference. And we'll just uh, – we'll see how many people thanks, respond Thanks for that. just like really like uh, – can you just let a good joke just pass? <laughs> anyway, Tempted by the Arik is one blue, blue, blue for a sorcery. For each opponent, gain control of up to one target creature or planeswalker. That player controls with mana value three or less. I think his card is very, very good. I was a little surprised more people weren't testing it, but I guess I can't be a hypocrite because I myself am also not testing it. This is most comparable to something like Control Magic, which takes something, just a creature, uh, for four mana. And in higher curving environments where people are playing big haymakers, uh, you're really going to want the Control Magic, right? Because what you want to do is take the best thing on the board, and then Control Magic becomes this devastating two-for-one, where you remove the best thing from your opponent, and you got the best thing on your side of the board for just four mana, which is really, really powerful. Tempted by the Arik, I like the play patterns of a lot more, because I find Control Magics to be extraordinarily swingy, because you invest a lot of mana. Control Magics are not cheap. It's not a cheap effect, right? Control Magic is four... We saw more recently, uh, in more recent sets, it's been printed at 5 mana, or even 6 mana, something like Imbolvus' Clutches. That's the amount of mana you're spending for this kind of effect, because it is a really powerful 2-for-1. And it's so swingy, because if your opponent just has a disenchant, then you got really blown out in terms of tempo. Because your 2-for-1 then turned into a 2-for-1 for your opponent, right? They just, you know, removed that thing and got everything back, undid all that value in one swift move. And so, I really like Tempted by the Arik as a design in this space, that... A limits the blow up it limits the blow up potential on both sides. You don't have the potential of saying, haha, four mana, now I have your Ulamog, and you don't have your Ulamog anymore, uh, and it's a huge blowout. But also, there's this there's no opportunity to answer the answer, you know, the, in the way that a disenchant or even like, you know, a bounce spell for, for target permanent. Like bounce the, you know, control magic back to their hand, it's in speed, get the creature back. Those kind of blowouts are really limited. And I think people don't quite realize how powerful this effect is. It may seem like, oh, I can only, I'm paying four mana for a three drop. That's not a good rate. But you're paying four mana to remove your opponent's three drop and get a three drop of your own, which is quite a bit more value than you might normally get for four mana. So I think card's really good. The blue, blue, blue has me a little bit wary. And uh, I'm just not, it's not space for this in my cube, I feel like, with what I'm trying to accomplish. But I really like this design space for control magic effects because it limits that variability. Yeah, and I don't think the mana cost is necessarily a negative for all people, for all cube designs. I think a lot of people might be interested in actually trying to reward you for going into a high devotion deck if you're trying to especially like curb these sort of like five color nonsense decks. I could see this being really appealing if you were trying to push monocolor decks, like you said. Just, yeah. you know, here's the thing that will draw you in. A big payoff for being in blue that um much easier to cast if you're mono blue or have a ton of fixing. Is that it for blue? Wow, blue's so. so easy. They've already printed all the counter spells. There's barely anything new, blue, <laughs> new and blue. Yeah, when will blue get good cards? This is what <laughs> I'm saying. Everyone's complaining about white. When's blue going to get the good cards? That's what I want to know. The first card in black here is the most popular card from our set survey. Jet, why don't you give it to him? Yeah, it's Sedgemore Witch, which is two and a black for a card with a lot of abilities. So its first ability is, well, its power and toughness is a 3-2. And then its first ability is Menace. It also has this new ability called Ward, which means when it's targeted with a spell or an ability that an opponent controls, they have to pay a cost. And the cost for Sedgemore Witch is they have to pay three life. And then it also has Magecraft. So when you cast or copy an instant or sorcery, you get a 1-1 black and green pest creature with when this creature dies, you gain one life. And so overall, 70% of respondents are testing this card. 
with an average rating of 2.3. And so it's not the highest rated card of the set, even by a close margin. I think it's like the, the sixth or seventh highest rated card of the set, but it's by far the most popular in terms of number of people testing it with uh, 141 or 70% of people testing it. I think that owes to the fact that this is a pretty unique effect in black. We don't see almost any Magecraft style payoffs in black, even when prowess was the thing back in the cons block, prowess was not in any of black's color pie. So uh, it didn't get any of those cards at that point. So I think people are excited about this because it's flashy, powerful, seemingly powerful at least. And fills a a slot quote unquote that was not previously occupied by anything it's kind of a new kind of card for black to get and i'm also excited about this card i think it's going to be pretty good i don't think it's nuts i think this will play out similar to like a monastery mentor in yeah i can see that in limited which to anthony's point earlier i think is overrated quite a bit and i think if we take the testers and the rank to be an indication of power level which of course it's not we've talked about before how like People might not be playing a card that's powerful because they don't think it fits into their cube. So this is not a strict proxy for power level. But I do think this card is significantly worse than like an Elite Spellbinder, for example, uh, and only ranks slightly lower than it in terms of the, the rating. So I don't know. I think some people might be disappointed by the performance of this just because Black does get a fair amount of instances and sorceries, but a lot of them are hand hate, which you're going to want to use on early turns of the game, not after you've cast a three drop. It makes your removal better has a really good floor. I mean, a 3-2 Menace with Ward 3 for 3 mana, if you're playing a proactive deck, I think is a very good floor, and I'm happy to play in any aggressive black deck, but not everyone plays aggressive black decks. They might... It's actually Ward for 3 life, which I think is even more relevant in an aggressive deck. Right, right, that, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, we actually came up in, in our in our testing, Anthony, where I... we, we The had combination this... of Ward 3 and uh, 3 power and menace means i can't block it with my one creature or use a removal spell when i have one creature in play yeah we did we had this really grindy match where you drafted a mostly white splashing a little bit of black aggressive deck and i drafted this grixis tempo deck and i just my goal was basically to have enough like one for one removal for all of your creatures to then eventually win with whatever i had on board and we went all the way down to i had like six cards left in my library you were at like three life and i was i drew sedge more which i was like finally there's no way you can answer this one because you have to remove it or play like two more creatures to block it, and you just can't possibly do that because of the word ability. So, yeah, I, I think it's a really powerful card, though I do think perhaps flashier than it is powerful. I'd be surprised if this popped up in Constructed, for example. Maybe Standard, but I, I don't think it's going to be a Constructed card. What do you mean? You have the, the Chain of Smog combos, right? Jason's hot take. Hot take? Chain of Smog combos are bad design? Well, it's not, it's not the best enabler for the chain of small combos it's at true. all. And also, you got to pay your own three life when you turn. No, I don't. I don't. I don't see it popping up in. I mean, word word is opponents controls, but yes, yeah. it's not. Um, oh, yeah, true. That's actually, actually good make, to note. They already fixed Trout a while ago. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's good to note. No, I, I, it's not. It's nowhere near the best enabler for the for the chain of small combos either. Even if you're talking about that that thing's viability. But I think so. if you're if you're in a cube where you enjoy spells, matters, mechanics, and tokens as well, this just offers a lot of flexibility. Oh yeah, it's it's a card I like a lot, and I see a lot of people liking. So a very appealing card. I'm, I'm into it. What do you yeah, think, Jay? Did you test this at all? Uh, I like was testing it, and then I just realized I just never wanted it in my decks, and so. <laughs> well, that's a pretty good reason to stop testing it. Yeah, it's one of those one of those cards. Test you, complete. Um, I ended up uh sort of forgoing it after after sort of that that testing. I will say that I think what Andy said I think is true in terms of the the variety of cubes that are interested in this card. If you take a look at the the testers that are testing it on the map. They're, they're sort of all over the place, and so I think a lot of people are finding, uh, finding a spot for this card. Maybe it's their, the spells parts interest them, or maybe it's the, the tokens, but I think a lot of people are interested in it. 
I think the other thing people compare it to a lot is Young Pyromancer, and I think that I think owes a lot to uh, why it finds such a high spot on the chart here, where it is sort of like the perfect balance of familiar and new. Like, we don't really have this effect in black yet, but we kind of know how it plays out and know it's powerful and fun to play with, so uh, a lot of people are, are drawn to it for those reasons. Yeah. I think for this kind of effect specifically, the jump from two to three mana is a huge, huge jump. Yeah, that's true. Because it's not just in terms of sequencing, but, like, it's... In an aggressive, proactive deck, it's going to be very difficult to get to a point where you can play a Sedgemore Witch and trigger it on the same turn. Because you will need four mana, which is a lot in a proactive deck if your cube is fast. And you will have to have held a one mana instant or sorcery until the point where you could actually cast it, right? Which either means you had a removal spell you could have used on prior turns but chose not to because you're like, I want to get a one-one I want to get a one, one pest also for my trouble. Or you held a hand-hate spell, which I can't imagine ever doing. You have to top deck it, I guess you know, the turn you had your fourth land. So, again, I think it's going to be more fun than good, but I'm testing it. I think it's going to be fun. I'm excited about it. This card reminds me of a card that has no reason to remind me of other than it's got the same mana cost, but I so badly wanted Pestilent Spirit to be a thing. That's the the three-mana black card that gives all of your instants and sorceries death touch from yeah, that card's so cool. Gills of Ravnica. It's so cool. The card is so cool. And I've kept trying to find excuses to put it in my cube, and I can never... Can never have enough excuses. This is basically, you know, a, a red black gold card or a pretty, is, yeah. or in my environment at least, a, a pretty overcosted body. But I that mean, card is so cool. This card is also. You don't cool. need an excuse. Yeah. Uh, up next is Baleful Mastery, which is three and a black for exile target creature or planeswalker, but you can also play pay one and a black instead. And if you do, your opponent draws a card uh, when you exile it. This card's pretty popular. Um, it's more popular than I expected it to be. Uh, I agree. It has an average rating of 2.4, and 60% of respondents are testing it. Yeah, it's more popular than I expected, but not because I don't like it. I love this card. I think it's really powerful, and even though I hate this kind of templating, this is not a clean templating, and I'm not a fan of it. Like This like much harder to read kicker is really not doing it for me, but I think the card is very, very powerful, and it is the kind of modality that I do actually really like. Do you want to talk a little bit about this about this templating, Anthony? I saw you wince a little bit uh, before we talk about the card itself. I don't think there's much to say. We all know it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> this is the, the the least egregious of the reverse kicker cards because the effect is fairly simple, so it's relatively readable. But, oh boy, yeah. I, I am not excited to put any card with this templating anywhere. E- even with the simple effect, that's only one line of text, Exile Target Creature or Planeswalker, the card still ends up being five lines of rules text for this very simple distinction, which it just could be done so much more cleanly. I from observing conversations online thought more people saw this as overcosted and drawing a card was a huge downside you couldn't possibly let people do it to me i think the two mana mode of this is best to compare to something like path to exile which path to exile a premium removal spell that lots of people rate very highly but does put you down a card right all you've done is turn your opponent's creature into a land you've transformed their resources but you haven't one for one them and in that way giving your opponent a land is similar to making your opponent draw a card. And, you know, drawing a card is, I think, early in the game, much worse than getting a land into play from your library, and late in the game, much better. So, like, a Path to Exile on turn 7 is much better than the 2-mana mode of Baleful Master on turn 7. But on turn 7, you can pay the 4-mana mode, and then you just have a very clean, you know, Exile Target Creature or Planeswalker. So, I think this giving you the option to navigate very explicitly that tempo and value axis uh, is very appealing to me, and... Even though the templating is super clunky, I'm going to be playing it, and I'm pretty excited about it as an answer for Planeswalkers. 
Yeah, it's definitely a card uh, I underestimated at first, um, but in testing so far, it's it's been quite good. But I guess one one question that I had for for you folks is, does removal against Planeswalkers need to recoup card advantage to be good? Because one of the best parts of this card is obviously that it can hit Planeswalkers in sort of higher power level environments, where the four mana mode is is a pretty steep cost. So, does the the two mana mode is this? good against planeswalkers or is it just sort of medium and, and you have to do it to to make sure you stay on tempo i mean i think it's sort of medium but if the option is or if the other option is you know wait another turn or your opponent's going to get another card worth of value out of their planeswalker then it ends up working out pretty well and it's also instant speed so there's plenty of opportunity where you can like navigate getting that card advantage back by you know killing something at the right time I would love it if we had removal for Planeswalkers that recouped the natural card advantage that Planeswalkers produce, right? Like, you played the Planeswalker, you activated an ability, which did something other than... Mm-hmm. Did something to some other resource that wasn't the Planeswalker itself. It made a token, it drew you a card, it found something, it removed something, it you know interacted with the board in a way that will not be removed by removing the Planeswalker, which so is... So you want, like, destroy target Planeswalker, draw a card? I, I mean, sure, Sign I would love up. a card like that. But, but like when you're saying I want a, a card that recoups the the disadvantage or my opponent's advantage from the planeswalker, I feel like you're just saying I don't like planeswalkers. No, I like planeswalkers quite a bit. Okay, because no, here's the I, thing. I've I I've been outed though. Because, but they should have something. <laughs> no, I, I I'm not saying that's a bad thing about the cards. Like in the same way that I like creatures that enter the battlefield abilities over creatures that don't have them, it doesn't mean I don't like removal spells. Mm-hmm. My answer to your question, Jed, is that sure I would like that spell. But we basically don't get any of that. We don't get spells that recoup the the card advantage from Planeswalkers. So that's just not how Planeswalkers play. The way they play is that they give you some kind of guaranteed value, and you get to make a decision when you play it of do I uptick or do I downtick. Downticking makes it more susceptible to more removal, makes it more susceptible to attacks, but I get more value out of it in most circumstances. Upticking is this gambit where you think maybe you can race to an ultimate, or you think it's going to stick around and actually have a Baleful Mastery, and now your uptick looks kind of bad. That's just how this works with Planeswalker removal. We don't get Planeswalker removal that recoups that card disadvantage, really. So your so your answer to my question is that it's a bad question. I, that's a bar that I, I don't think we can afford to hold Planeswalker yeah. interaction to because we don't have any real examples of it. I had a, a custom card I designed, which the actual rule text has to be kind of clunky to make this work, but the idea was kill a creature, but if it's a Planeswalker, you get to activate one of its loyalty abilities before you kill it. At sorcery speed, obviously, because you can't activate, you know, loyalty abilities at instant speed. The actual way it was written is like you steal target creature a planeswalker, sacrifice it at the end of the turn, uh, which gives you an opportunity then a window to activate activate a loyalty ability. And that's the kind of thing I think would be interesting to recoup the the card advantage from planeswalkers in removal. But obviously, way too clunky and Ill- poorly thought out to actually be a card. You know, there is actually a card that that we're describing. It's the elder spell. Yeah, the elder spell really recoups all <laughs> kinds of elder spell recoups everything. Still. Still kind of salty about that one, honestly. <laughs> Next card, I was glad to see you put this here, Jet. I think it was you, Jet, that put this here. This was not me. Oh, was this Anthony then? I did. See, great minds, Anthony. Unwilling Ingredient is Shitty a card minds that over I... here with me. <laughs> Unwilling Ingredient is a card that I don't think many people have considered at all for their cubes. This is one mana, Creature Frog, 1-1. One, one. It's got Menace. Gotta love a one mana, 1-1 one, one with Menace. And then it has an ability you can activate in the graveyard, which is two and a black, exiled from your graveyard to draw a card and lose one life. Better than Thraben Inspector? You decide. I don't think so. I think the easier comparison to me is Falmar Knight, which is the adventure mm-hmm. card uh, for three mana to draw a card, lose a life, and then it's a 1-1 one, one with death touch for one. So basically it stacks up the same, except here you get the creature first, 
which I think is honestly just in a proactive deck, it's much better. Plus, again, menace is, I think, a very underrated keyword. It is a frog that will hold a sword well. So the big question, I, I think for all those reasons, if you're playing Falmire Knight, you might want to consider this, because I think it just has a nicer play pattern. You don't have this stupid adventure zone. Let's find out together in the adventure zone. But wow. Death Touch might Dragging be. adventure. In this house, we love adventure. We okay. don't drag adventure. Well, <laughs> look, I have in my cube the stupid token that people can put down. <laughs> I have I have one of those tokens, too. I, I think this card is cool. I think it's worse than Falmire Knight. And, you know, I was kind just of Just because the, the difference in keyword is... Difference in keyword it definitely makes it less huge. flexible. Like, I think this only fits in an aggressive deck, whereas and in an aggressive Knight. deck, who's gonna block it? Who cares? It's one mana. It's it's a one it's a woman with menace. You're not gonna block it unless you get to put some kind of equipment on it or something. But you don't want them to block. Yeah. Okay. Great. So it's a one mana unblockable one one. Uh, it's still pretty bad, I think. Hey, here's why. So the reason I think Falmire Knight is better is the same reason I think Thraburn Inspector is better, which is that it's just a way better top deck. The reason those are good is there are one yeah. mana plays that are relevant in the late game. Because in the late game, you just draw a card with your Falmire Knight, or you crack your clue immediately. And this, you have to play this 1-1 and find some way to kill it, and then you can cash in your 3-mana draw card. Which you can do at instant speed, which is good, but I don't think it's quite as good as those other cards stack up. Just for that reason. It's not a good top deck. Yeah, that's fair. I still think this is a little bit overlooked. I think if you're into 3-bit Inspectory, Falmire Knighty cards, and especially if you have a kind of aristocracy sacrifice theme. Or discard. Or discard theme. I think this could be worth looking at even though it's a weird frog I, I think the fact that it's a weird frog is a plus a clear advantage for anthony all right anthony brackish trudge now you have to read this one so brackish trudge is a three mana four two enters the battlefield tapped uh love to see that uh and you know you don't <laughs> i hate to see that <laughs> pay two and return it from your graveyard to your hand if you've gained life life this turn I just wanted to call this out because I think that life gain is sort of a difficult thing to design a lot of cubes. There have been in, in the past like a lot of payoff cards that are either like all in, either you're really doing it or they don't really work. Uh, and this just sets a really low bar of like a thing you can do repeatedly if you're gaining any amount of life. I, I like that it's a pretty aggressive card, which means it's not leaning into the sort of like I'm going to sit behind my walls and gain life forever kind of uh, mechanic. So I don't expect to see this card in very many places, but I just wanted to point it out as I think there have been a lot of instances of these more, inst more interesting, um, more flexible kinds of life gain payoffs for a lot of uh, lower powered cubes. Uh, so I like to see them continue to do that. I like that it's a fungus beast and that is where my like of it ends. I also <laughs> love that it's a fungus That's beast. That's all I like about it. The rest of it, I do not like. I, its name is so weird. It's got a good name, actually. I kind of like that, too. Brackish Trudge and the fact that it's a fungus beast, A+. Plus, love it. All the <laughs> I'm other not, I'm not the a card, fan of, don't like it. I'm not a fan of metal bands, but is this a good metal band name? I don't know anything about metal bands, but probably not. I feel like it's not angry enough. Brackish Trudge is... like Brackish Trudge is almost like Cellar Door. It's kind of, like, sweet. Brackish Trudge. Brackish Trudge. Brackish Trudge. All right, we can move on now. Brackish Trudge. Brackish All right, trudge. Anthony... Uh, <laughs> You have to tell me why you want to talk about Auric Lore Mage, too. This is the two black-black creature-human warlock. It's a 3-3, and it has an ability, tap, search your library for a card, put it into your graveyard, then shuffle. If it's an instant or sorcery card, put a plus-one, plus-one counter on Auric Lore Mage. I'm a little surprised more people aren't excited about this. Uh, it's obviously not like super, super powerful. It's not going to fit in your Bun Magic cube, but it just does a whole lot. If you're in a cube where you care about just entombing things, because you can entomb anything you want from your deck, yeah. that gives you a ton of flexibility to sort of turn on a whole set of different mechanics and archetypes and interactions. I just like that. 
Is there anything else it does? You said it does a whole bunch of things. I mean, you said basically the one thing. It's a five mana entomb. <laughs> it is a it's a turn four, five four mana entomb. entomb. It's a four mana entomb that then also just can grow into a legitimate threat on its own. If you are entombing instants and sorceries, it gets plus one plus one counters. This card's weird. I don't know what to make of it. I don't understand it. I don't know why it was made. Is there a flavor thing here I'm missing? Is this something to do with Wizard School? I think it was just made for me. Okay. I got a foil on my pre-release kit that you're welcome to have. I don't think I'm going to play anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that about sums it up. <laughs> I do want to talk about Lash of Malice. This is a card that's very fascinating to me. This is one black for an instant that gives target creature plus two, minus two until end of turn. I am really high on Disfigure in my own cube. It has proven to be very potent. Just because one mana removal for two toughest creatures is very good. And also, I will add the caveat that there's a non-trivial number of things, as Anthony experienced in our playtesting, that can give themselves indestructible between something like the one-mana Kithian, or your Adanto Vanguard, or Seasoned Hallowblade. These cards that can dodge normal removal that actually just die to disfigure, yeah. uh, which I think is very relevant. So there was a period in my, in, in my cube where I was pretty low on disfigure because it just felt like it compared so poorly to cheap burn spells where it's like this can't even hit planeswalkers it can't hit face it's basically just the creature part of a cheap burn spell but i've come around to it being still very powerful and relevant and as such i'm interested in lash of malice which i think for many applications will be pretty much identical yeah. uh most of the time you're going to use it in in many cubes you're just going to be using it to kill a thing with two toughness or less but given that i'm curious to know anthony and jet which do you think is more powerful Long-term, you know, time-traveling supercomputer, which one's going to contribute more to the win percentage in most cubes, Disfigure or Lash of Malice? I think, well, depends on what you mean by most cubes, but I guess if the supercomputer was a, time was a sample... Supercomputer. It's going to look at all of them. I think probably Disfigure. I think there are times in, in many cubes where you can win combat through Disfigure over Lash of Malice, and that, to me, seems more relevant than the, the boost to power that you would get from playing it on your own creature, but I could very easily be wrong. Yeah, so the, just, I mean, the, the concrete examples are like, you attack with a 2-2, two, two, your opponent has a 3-3. Three, three. Here, you really want Disfigure, because they block, you can shrink their thing, your creature survives, great. Lash of Malice on a situation does not work as removal for that 3-3. Three, three. Conversely, you have situations where you have a creature with more than 2 toughness, which now you can either turn your Lash of Malice into effectively a burn spell, deal 2 damage to your opponent if it's unblocked, or you can trade up, eat a bigger creature and yeah really the question of which of these is better comes down to largely this like how many how often do these situations come up in gameplay and then i guess also if you have some kind of heroic thing in your cube like targeting your own creatures with lash of malice could be relevant even if it dies maybe maybe, maybe that heroic trigger is good enough that you're willing to let your thing die to... maybe you target your frog that you need to draw a card with yeah maybe maybe you kill your unwilling ingredients so with you can Mavinda. draw a card oh wait oh wait this this figure still works there this figure does still work there but Basically, I can't decide. I like to avoid functional or near-functional duplicates in my cube as much as possible. And I like Lash of Malice. I can't decide if I'm going to run it alongside Disfigure instead of Disfigure. Not at all, because I already include Disfigure. And I was hoping one of you could give me some sage guidance here. So we talked about this previously, and I gave you previously a very, on very wishy-washy answer of, well, context matters. Anthony blah, said blah. context matters, and nothing's a binary. Everything's a spectrum. I'm Anthony. Burp, 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 burp. Yeah, sounds like me. Uh, I think I've changed my mind on it. Um, <laughs> specifically because I think that, you know, we, we've talked about... Well, there's Context these... doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I've changed my mind. Everything's a binary. My cube is the best cube. Everyone else's cube sucks. 
in whatever ways it's different than my own cube. I'm I sorry we interrupted it. you. I know you don't like to be interrupted. Go ahead. So so the situation that we talked about where it's like it is actually better is where, you know, you're at five and I have a three three with flying and I can attack you and get you dead. But I think that the even though those situations come up pretty rarely, and I think the situations where that extra two damage this turn is actually what wins you the game, and you were not just already ahead on board and could win in a number of turns, mm-hmm. means that I, I I think the the two cards are functionally different enough that I wouldn't blink at seeing both of them in the same pack, but I do think Disfigure is a little bit more powerful. A good solid answer from Anthony. I do my best. Who wants to plumb the forbidden? I would love to. Uh, so this is one that I throw in here that is actually be te- being tested by a couple people at a 1.8. So not super exciting to most players. But again, this is just a two-mana cantrip that's an instant, uh, which I love to see. It draws you a card, you lose one life. But you can also sacrifice any number of creatures and copy the spell for each of those creatures sacrificed. So it's a cantrip at instant speed that if you're about to lose a creature, you turn it into a two-mana divination or... If you're in the real late game, you have a bunch of tokens, you can draw a bunch of cards. That's the kind of flexibility and like the right amount of build around that gets me excited before in a magic card. I'd love this card too for the same reasons you mentioned. And to me, it fits right into this class of cards like Alter's Reap, Costly Plunder, Dredge is I think the iconic original example that just allow you to, for a black instant, sacrifice a creature or something and draw cards, right? Like somebody's going to die in combat, somebody's going to eat a removal spell, and you instead turn it into resources for yourself. And the reason I like this design so much more than the previous versions is the same reason I like everything. We've talked about it a million times. Mm-hmm. Much, much, much better floor. Because yeah. the floor on those other cards is nothing of mine is going to die naturally. I like my board well enough. I'm slightly ahead. But I can't use this card to get further ahead because it would require me sacrificing one of my permanents. So, like, I'm in this... Or you're super behind and have nothing to sacrifice. <laughs> or that. And then this card is just dead in your hand. It can't do anything. This has that great floor of you always get to draw a card from it with the flexibility to still scale up and draw more cards if you sacrifice more things. It's also much better in response to a board wipe. All the existing examples of this effect I'm aware of in black right, this actually scales draw a up fixed a lot, amount of cards. Is, uh, right, very exciting. Here, if you have six creatures and your opponent board wipes, like, guess what, buddy? Time to wheel draw a fortune myself, you know, and just start drawing a bunch of cards. There's even the pretty marginal upside that uh, this actually copies the spells, so some of these are a little bit risky if your opponent's going to counter That's them. That's true. You're down the creature you sacrifice as well, which can mean I have a really low floor uh, with this being copying you're at least going to get your one card back if you sacrifice something yeah yeah I'm really into this card for this effect it's not an effect I am interested in for my own cube but if you're in a cube where you like this effect I think this is from a design perspective the most appealing version for me because it scales in both directions much better floor and you're not losing a lot for the baseline mode right like right. you still get to you still get to cast it basically exactly as alters reap but you lose a little bit of life which is fine that's it for black, unless anybody has anything else they want to mention. I have a small question about eye twitch. It's an eye bat. It has a pretty big eye, but regular bats also have eyes. Why are they not eye bats? Or why is a regular bat not a wing bat or a torso bat? I just Googled eye twitch and did not get magic cards. <laughs> <laughs> I do that so often where I Google a thing that I know is a magic card name, and it's just like, no, here is the thing in the world. But, but how often do you Google the thing... And it shows you a magic card, and then you realize, ooh, it really knows me. Sometimes that happens, too, where it's like, I know what you want. Um, I wish I could yes and on this, Anthony, but I'm not sure how to make a funny joke about the weird bat. It kind of creeps me out. All right, let's talk about red cards. I find it unsettling. Red cards, this brings us to our first Commander 21 card that we're going to talk about. Do you want to run this one down, Jet? Yeah, sure. So this is Lelia, the Blade Reforged. Uh, I think I pronounced that correctly. I don't know. 
It's two and a red for a 2-2 with haste. And then whenever Lelia attacks, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. So it functionally draws a card for the turn. And then whenever you exile one or more cards from your graveyard or library, put a plus one, plus one counter on Lelia. And so when she attacks, she becomes a 3-3, three, three, uh, which is a pretty pretty incredible floor, honestly. And then she essentially draws a card every turn, assuming she can get to attack. I think this card is excellent. It's actually the most popular card within uh, Commander 2021. 61 out of 79 uh, testers with an average rank of 2.5. And so this actually rates just as highly, uh, if not more highly, than any card in in Strixhaven. And some of that has to do with who filled out the, the Commander 2021 survey versus Strixhaven, but I think this card's great. I agree this card is very, very powerful. And I, I've i been an advocate for a long time of... Again, I mentioned the sort of functional duplicate thing earlier. I think if you go back two years, a lot of people that were running power-optimized cubes were running just every Rabble Master variant at three mana and couldn't find any justification to do anything else in red. It was like, yeah, you got Rabble Master, you got Najila, you got Krenko Mob Boss, you got all these three mana Rabble Masters, your Handware Battlements, or Handware Garrison, Battlements is the land. And that's all that red had at three mana. And so I think... This is a very appealing alternative to those. I will say, having played with it over the weekend, I'm not any lower on it in terms of power level, though I think almost every game we played this Anthony, it also died to a disfigure or a lash of malice in response to the trigger or before you go to combat, which is fine. I, I, again, I think three mana cards that have to be answered are okay. I'm not super worried about that as a floor. Here's what I don't know about it. It's really kind of messed up like yeah <laughs> it's so 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 powerful to so getting to draw a card every single turn attached to your three three with haste for three and have it just grow with the game and turn into a four four five five not even taking into account the fact that you might get to cast a flashback spell or delve something away to make it bigger it's just like it's so much raw power without asking anything of you as the player to draft and and play around it and also really not interacting with anything else i mean i mentioned the delve and the flashback but you're not gonna i don't think it would be correct to adjust your, you don't need that to bump it from an a to an a plus or an a plus to an a plus plus right like none of that actually matters and so i'm gonna include it for now because uh it is card advantage in aggro which is something that aggro doesn't often get and i can imagine games where you'll actually cash this in to play a card off the top of your library in the late game. Like your mid-range opponent has stalled out. You have, they got blockers up for what you have. Like one of my favorite things about Bomat Courier is a mode people don't often think of, which is that if you're hellbent, you draw your Bomat Courier. It's just got cyclic one, baby. <laughs> you just throw it into combat. You know, they, they, they block it with whatever, who cares? You just get to draw a card, which is pretty good. Uh, so I can see situations where this is going to be very relevant. And I think it's extremely powerful. I just, it's one of the first times where this card is so powerful and, just doesn't excite me because it doesn't really ask anything of your players to draft or build around or play around that I'm not sure it's going to stick around in my own cube on play patterns alone. I'm much more into some of the other things at, at three mana for the, the decisions they allow my players to make. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as you know, I am not, uh, I personally do not feel any obligation to play cards because they are powerful. That is not what cube is there for me for. Uh, and this card is just can be very oppressive. You sort of have to have an answer right there or you're just going to get both buried in card advantage and under tremendous pressure from being attacked. So it's not the kind of play pattern I'm looking for. That's interesting. Yeah, this is a card that I've I've included but haven't gotten to, to test quite yet. I will say before we get rules lawyered by people on Reddit, it doesn't quite work with, with flashback specifically. Um, but oh, yeah. Yeah. I, so do you guys think it that doesn't? the... 
No, it's a flashback. It's entering exile from the stack, not the graveyard or library. So it doesn't quite work. Thanks for heading off those rules there. Sorry for getting (laughs) to Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. Um, (laughs) So do you guys think the ranking of 2.5 is too low? I mean, I, no, I think that it's reasonable ranking, like, to, to rank a card low because it's yeah, not that's true. You know, something that you're looking that's for. True. Like, you want to test it, but you ultimately don't think it's going to lead to fun play patterns. Yeah, yeah. I, I ranked it lower than I ranked other cards, even though I think it's probably the most powerful card from either set in my environment in terms of raw power level. I ranked it lower than a lot of other cards I'm more excited about and think fit with my design goals more. I don't think this is as good as Oko, but to compare it to another three-mana card that is extraordinarily powerful, at least Oko gave you all kinds of interesting decisions to make, right? Right. At least Oko Oko was interesting. (laughs) It it created interesting decisions. This is very different. My my point is that... Interesting decisions turn your thing into an elk. I wanted Oko to to work in my (laughs) own Interesting things like, that's an elk, and that's an elk, and that's an elk. I really wanted Oko to work in my cube because it is a very modal card. It has two live modes the turn you play it. You just get to make a lot of decisions about what that card does. Mm-hmm. Lelia, you play, you attack, you play the top card of your library if you can because it's card advantage if you can play that card instead of another card in your you hand. You have to remember not to play a land before you attack the, the next turn. You can even play lands with that if I can just cast cards. Oh, you can play it. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just uh, I, it doesn't spark joy for me. I also it doesn't come in foil. The art's not that good. I don't know. It, wow. It's just I'm not I'm not in love with it. How about conspiracy theorist? Give it to us, Anthony. So a conspiracy theorist is a two mana two two. Whenever it attacks, you can pay one and discard a card if you do draw a card. So we have a on attack you can dual rummaging, and whenever you discard one or more non land cards, you can exile one of them from your graveyard. If you do, you may cast it this turn. So it's a little wordy, but effectively. Uh, you rummage, but then you can still cast the card you rummage. Uh, and also, when you discard for any reason. Uh, I definitely like it a lot more than Layla, for example, just because it remains killable for a while, so even when it's generating some card advantage, you can still get rid of it at some point. It's not growing, so it's not just like also beating your opponent down. And it asks you to actually pay a little bit to, to generate that advantage. So I think it leads to some interesting patterns. I like that you actually can draft around it, you know, make decisions to include more looting in your deck to activate it. Overall, I feel medium about it. Jet, you play with Conspiracy Theorist? I'm not, so I don't think it quite gets there on power level for um, for my environment. I think if you had asked me the same question a few years ago, it probably would have, but I think two drops in red have, have come along in terms of power level at this point, but I think this card is super cool. It just offers you its fine floor, and then offers you some really cool synergies if you're doing things with uh, with discard. I think I think it's just a really cool card, and it's worth mentioning that the cube community I think is actually pretty interested in this card. I think it's like the eighth most popular of the set, which was kind of surprising to me. The rating that it gets isn't isn't that high. It's a, a two point zero, and so a lot of people may not continue to cube it. But twenty five percent of respondents are testing it, which is higher than I expected. Yeah, I mean to compare it to another card. I mean Leon and Lightscribe tested by fewer people with a lower rating, which definitely surprises me because as far as two drops with fine floors and potential upside, I'm much more interested in the Lightscribe myself than the conspiracy theorist. I think a, a good comparison might be Dismissive Pyromancer, which is a card I, I cubed for a while but um, eventually cut due to power level reasons. Do you guys think this is better than that card? I think it's quite a bit more powerful. Yeah, actually being able to generate real card advantage, uh, I think it's a bigger big deal. There's also the uh, Magmatic Guy. Magmatic, magmatic channeler. channeler. That one. That one's also somewhat similar, I would say, right? You get to discard and exile a top two and, and choose, choose one, one of them. So you get, yeah. you get card selection instead mm-hmm. of the card advantage there, so you're still 
rummaging. But then you also get the ability for it to possibly be a two mana four four. Yeah, I've gotten. I think one of the nice things about about Channeler is that you don't have to attack with it, uh, and then later on it becomes a four yeah. four. And so the fact that it scales later, I think, is pretty pretty powerful in that context. Yeah, I guess you know I'm not testing conspiracy theorist. When I looked at it, I felt like it would be. I like the the option, obviously, as we know, big simper modes over here, but it feels like that ability is only going to be irrelevant in kind of a pretty narrow window where you can still attack with a 2-2, but you have nothing yeah. better to do with your mana. And like, Interesting, like on yeah. turn two, I don't want to spend turn three paying one for this ability unless I am really have a pretty buns hand. I, I would like to be casting spells out of my hand and getting full full value for all of my mana. And late in the game, I'm just going to be cashing this in Bomat Courier style because it's very unlikely I'm still going to be able to attack with a 2-2 on the turns of the game where I have extra mana floating around to just throw into this thing. Or if I can still attack with a 2-2, I'm probably have already won anyway in my aggro deck. So, you know, if it had haste or something, making it a much better top deck in the late game, uh, I'd obviously be kind of messed up with haste just as a 2-2 with haste and then all his other abilities. But it just doesn't quite get there for me because I'm, I'm worried that the window is going to be too small. And as you said, Jet, there's no shortage of powerful and diverse options at the red two-drop slot. I think one thing I always respond to when I look at the survey results is I think a lot of people are really archetypally guided. And this keying off of discard yeah. as a theme, I think, is the reason it's ranking somewhat highly. Is that people are interested in more discard matters cards in red, which is not a way I design most of my cubes. And so I'm just not usually keyed into that particular channel. But I think it's a valuable signpost for those kinds of cubes. Yeah, for sure. I, I think I would rather have Channeler in that same slot. I mean, maybe alongside it, if you're really going right. deep on the discard thing, if you're having madness spells or something like that. But I think that's probably why it's up there. Can we point out one reprint? We don't usually talk about reprints, but I thought Grin Grinning Ignis was very funny here. Is it literally the only reprint in the entire set? It's literally the only reprint. And it's interesting. It's a reprint from Future Sight. So this is something they'll do every once in a while. Uh, presumably, uh, Maro's mentioned this before, that whenever they're making a new set, they go back and look through Time Spirals, all the future-shifted <laughs> cards, and they're like, where are any of these cards from here? And apparently this is where Grinning Ignis was from the whole time. I love to think of the like little checklist they have to go through just like after they've done all the design development, yeah. really, and they're like, all right, now someone go check the future site cards. Someone check and make sure we haven't accidentally hired a white supremacist artist again. Oh, so, someone check and make sure that this, uh, this flavor text doesn't have some meaning in some other language, just like name we made up. Like all these little things they have to check before they send a set out the door. Yeah, that's fun. We got another future shifted card printed in its in its home, which I think is pretty fun. I'm curious how many of those are left. Somewhere there's a list. Not much else in red. We can touch briefly on a Freet Flame Painter. So this is three in a red for a Freet Shaman. It's a one four with double strike. Kind of a weird combination of casting cost and French vanilla abilities here. And then it has, whenever a Freet Flame Painter deals combat damage to a player, you may cast target Insurer Sorcery card from your graveyard without paying its mana cost, and then exile it, because you cast it from your graveyard. This is a card that I initially was like, maybe for the combat trick cube? And then I ruled it out, because I was like, the, oh, really? I was like, that environment's really low to the ground, at four mana, I want something that has like immediate impact. And my impression at first was that it actually didn't interact with combat trick super well, on account of only flashing the thing back when it deals combat damage. I mean, the double strike is relevant because you get to deal one damage and then flash back a combat trick. But the fact that this flashback ability is not limited by mana cost, can cast any kind of giant instant or sorcery, I think is where this card is at its best. And in my combat trick cube, there's very little over two mana. And almost everything is one mana. So the curve is really, really low. You're not going to get a ton of value from flashing things back. The reason I came around 
to putting it in the cube, and I have since added it, is just because of how good Double Strike is with combat tricks in general. Yeah. Even if you ignore the flashback, which I think is kind of gravy, just having a Double Strike creature here with the threat of flashing things back and potentially having some insane turn where you deal 16 or 24 damage by flashing back a couple combat tricks and, and going nuts... I think it makes it makes it worth it. So yeah, I think it's gonna be pretty punishing in that context where you're not gonna want to let it deal damage to you, but you're also really not gonna want to block it. Put you in between a rock and a hard place. I think for you know a, a lot of cubes, if you're trying to focus on spells matter, on graveyard stuff, uh, any of these kinds of things, like setting up opportunities for to let your players find ways to force through damage with this, or you know set up a putting a huge spell on the the graveyard to be able to cast with it is uh, kind of a fun opportunity. That's kind of all we had earmarked for red. So quite a bit less than other colors in this particular set though the gold cards we have a lot of red representation once we get down there but first we got to make it through green all right first we got to talk about the uh the slight wrench that was thrown into our survey system which is abundant <laughs> harvest this is you know the classic thing you know is so many people out there building tools and websites and things around magic and trying to make sure that you can accommodate all the magic sets and make sure that everything always works and then wizards comes along and says this is a reprint that we're printing before the actual print just mm -hmm. so you know well they've instituted a new one in one out policy for future shifted cards so they printed one <laughs> future shifted card <laughs> there we go <laughs> this is a green sorcery for one green mana you get to choose land or non-land then reveal cards from the top of your library until you hit a card of a chosen type and put it into your hand it is a green cantrip i adore this card i love it so much because it is very powerful i think and the fact that it's one mana to draw kind of whatever you need i mean you're either going to draw the land in the early game if you need the land still or you're going to draw some action obviously action can mean a lot of things it might mean a mana dork it might mean a rampant growth which is not great but better than another land in most circumstances i also love it because it's so clean just so so clean in a in a set where again some of this templating frankly kind of clunky for my purposes as like an evergreen cube with cards from all different kinds of sets i would appreciate it if we didn't have these things like baleful mastery kind of sneaking in here with this like awkward templating the templating beautiful love it think it's great uh so i'm really really excited about this card and i'm curious to know what you all think about it yeah i think well before we get into what we think of it we should mention what the cube community thinks of it uh, oh, and it's you, actually Jeff. yeah it's actually the highest rated card of the set the strixhaven specifically uh, it has an average rating of 2.5, but only 25% of uh, respondents are testing it compared to like 70% for, for Sedgemore Witch. And so it's being tested by a smaller subset of the community, but that part of the community is, is really high on the card for their own cubes. Yeah, it's a great example of how that, how those questions we ask can demonstrate that kind of thing, right? It's really, really high rated, but very low testing, which means that, you know, the people that have the kind of cube where this fits or like this kind of effect are really keyed into it. But for other people, they're just kind of overlooking it. I will say there could be some other polluting here. There could be players that are planning on adding this card, but will add it in their Modern Horizons 2 survey when this card yeah. is actually printed, potentially. I don't yeah. know if that's the case. We don't really know for sure, but that's a, a bit of a hole here in our data I don't, collection. I don't think most cube designers are holding out. I think that I don't if they think see so a card, either. they're excited about it. I don't think so either, but it is a possibility so that could maybe explain that but I, overall i think it is just that i think people are not really looking for green cantrips i think that yeah. it's the kind of effect that they're not excited about in that color and so they it was easy to kind of overlook this card because it doesn't feel doesn't conform with expectations for what this color should be doing in a lot of cubes not unlike something like leon and light scribe yeah sure. or once upon a time which is uh, i think another pretty easy comparison when we did the survey for once upon a time it was a smaller group of um respondents but once upon a time got a rating of 2.4 there and so i think it's 
I, I'm curious to what extent it is that people are underrating the card uh, for people that are interested in power level, because I think Once Upon a Time is very clearly underrated by both constructed players and cube players, although it's much better in constructed. And so I do wonder if Abundant Harvest is suffering from the same thing. But it is worth mentioning that if you look at the, the cube map of the people that are testing Abundant Harvest, they are sort of in an area that I would personally associate with these sort of more efficient environments that are really interested in, in, in cantrips and those style of things. And so I do think that there are just a large number of people that just aren't really interested in, in green cantrips. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think that green cantrips have sort of fallen in a weird place. Like I really like Adventurous Impulse in theory, where it's like one mana, it fixes your mana a little bit without just like saying, go get whatever you want or gets you a creature. But the fact that it can miss and it can just, you can just not hit a land and just be out of luck is, Ugh, is a real, real frustration. Ugh. So I actually love this design because the floor is so much higher. You always get land or creature. If you know, you're playing a deck that's mostly lands and creatures, it'll smooth out what your deck is going to do, but it doesn't just fix that by saying, well, let's just look at 12 cards and let you get what you really need. Cause that just opens the, the, the ceiling up to being like, well, I'll get this exact combo and like this precise set of things that I'll just ruin my opponent. Just making it a much higher floor, but like a very reasonable ceiling just makes it a card that I'm really excited about. And like Andy said, this deck, uh, sorry, not this deck, this this whole set has a lot of cards that are a little bit tedious to read and understand. And this Too is just many words. a nice, simple design. It's a cool callback to an old card that's a cool callback to modern horizons 2 which comes out in two months well no it's it's also a cool callback to uh to abundance uh which right. was the enchantment that sort of let you do this repeatedly um and yeah like i'm extremely excited for modern horizons 2 and this is just uh i think it's doing its job at getting me even more excited about it yeah probably my favorite card from either of these sets from Strix Savant or Commander 21 in terms of all of checking all those boxes now jet it says here that you're unsure if you're actually going to cube it now uh, t how can we talk you into this well, I mean, you might have already I don't, I'm, done I don't so. want to talk you into it. You cube what you want. If you don't want green cantrips. <laughs> How can I convince you to make your cube just like mine? <laughs> I don't want you to make your cube just like mine. I just, you know, in the spirit of, you know, sharing knowledge and uh, sharing experience and perspective... I'm so excited about this card uh, that I you could at least test it, see how it performs. <laughs> just come I play think, Andy's cube. Jed, yeah. if you were as excited about a card for your cube as I am about this card, I would test it. I would just be like, I'm going to test this and see how it goes. I trust Jed. He's a powerful, smart man. I want to, I want to like see the world through his eyes. I would test it out in the cube and see how wow. it performs. So you're gonna, you're gonna cube thunderous order for me. I didn't say you, Anthony. <laughs> It's I, not I a do matter actually of you, think... the person. It's a matter of your cube, the cube. If you had a cube that was like the button magic cube in power level then we could have this conversation. But also our podcast would be much worse because we would just be talking about the same cards every time. I do actually I do actually think that, that I will test it. Like I, I personally I am sort of less interested in the in the green cantrips, mostly because they feel kind of airy. It doesn't feel like they create super interesting decisions during the drafting portion. Like at least with blue cantrips, for example, you can sort of prioritize them more highly if you have spells related cards. And so on power level I think the card is definitely there, but it's Never really a card that I'm like excited to draft, really. And to be honest, never a card I'm like particularly excited to play, even though I like playing with very powerful cards. But I do think that I that I will try it out, given your glowing praise. Oh, I don't know. That was very convincing. I think I'm not going to test it. <laughs> we go around in circles. <laughs> I I will say I think it is as much as I like cantrips. I agree with what I think is the spirit of your analysis, Jet, which is that they are worse in green decks in our respective cubes. And the reason for that, from my perspective, is that blue is kind of the the pillar, the foundation of control in my environment. It's very hard mm -hmm. to play a control deck without blue because you need 
stack interaction and you need card advantage because that's how you're going to win the game. If you try to do like a black-white control deck, you just end up being a bad mid-range deck pretty much that will get outdrawn by your opponent who has any number of card draw spells because you don't have the blue the blue ability to just kind of continue to generate card advantage. Yeah. So because of that, control decks play reactively and as a result very rarely have anything to do in the first couple turns of the game, right? Because what are you going to do? Your opponent hasn't done anything yet. Maybe if you're, uh, you know, on the draw, you spend your first turn disfiguring their, you know, turn one play because it's a really threatening one drop or something. But mostly you have this space in the game where it's totally justifiable to spend some mana doing something, right? And I'd much rather spend mana on those turns advancing my game plan. And when that doesn't mean casting a counter spell because it's only turn one, and it doesn't mean removing something because my opponent hasn't played anything worth removing, then getting some card selection and advantage is is where I like to slot those cantrips in. And this does not do that in green decks. My green decks have something they already want to do on turn one, which is play some kind of ramp effect. And so I don't want to spend my turn one playing Abundant Harvest in my green deck, for the most part. The role I think it plays in green decks is... I mean, it's, it's, it's the simplest, most elegant modal card, right? Uh, it, what it does is it gives you a land if you're trying to get that third or fourth land to cast your Planeswalker, or it gives you action late in the game if you draw it and you need something else to draw. Here's what I'll say to you, Jet. Are you more excited about putting it in your deck if I say you can and should put it in a land slot? Maybe. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just imagine it's a come-into-play tapped forest that says you can't play me if you have no other green sources in play. And alternatively, you can just cycle me for the next non-land card on top of your deck. I think Andy is thinking that I like modal double-faced lands just as much as he does. Um, I'm just yeah. thinking that, you know, I understand how it's hard to compete with any other green card. Like, you're going to replace a finisher or a ramp creature with this? Probably not. But you replace a lowly forest? Sounds great. A lowly forest? All the time. <laughs> I'm running this in land slots. Yeah, I'm off it now. You're telling me I'm going to cut forest from my deck for this? No. Nah. Just play 41 cards then, Anthony. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I will try it as a, as a personal gift to you, Andy. I appreciate that, Jet. What a, now what you a, owe me. What a, what a brave sacrifice. Uh, let's talk about Pest Infestation, but someone else read the card because I read the last card. Uh, I will read this card because I absolutely love it. Um, <gasps> Pest, Pest Infestation is XX green for a sorcery, and it says destroy up to X target artifacts and or enchantments. Create twice X... 1-1 one, one black and green pest creature tokens with when this creature dies, uh, you gain one life. Technically, this card is the highest rated card across either survey. It has an has a average rank of, of 2.7, and so a lot of people are excited for this. I think mostly, if I had to guess, for power level reasons. And uh, it has about 62% of people testing it from the Commander 21, 2021 survey. I just love this card. It's scalable. You know, In the late game, you can cast this for X equals 5, and you... Get to kill a bunch of your opponent's artifacts and enchantments, but you don't need five targets, which I think is great. Its floor is essentially Reclamation Sage, which I think is already a pretty fine floor in my own cube. I am pretty devastated that it does not have a foil, which I think is very sad. Yeah, I also love this card. I think for obvious reasons, for anyone that's listened to me talk for any amount of time about magic cards, the fact that it's modal is great. Small notes here, like you said, Jet, you don't need targets for this. You, your opponent has no artifacts and enchantments. So you just, you know, spend five mana and make, you know, a couple one ones. It's, it's something. It's something to do, right? Better than a dead card in your hand. My only complaints about this card are lack of a foil and also unique tokens. The one one pests, you know, it's a thing. It makes sense in this set, but and also makes sense flavor wise for what's happening here. But uh, definitely another token to keep track of, which is, which is something. But yeah, I think the card's great. Really excited about it. Perfect. No disagreement whatsoever. Anthony, do you Easy. love Pest Infestation? You love these little cute guys eating this scroll? 
it's pretty cute. Uh, I don't hate that. I will say the templating is slightly clunky, where you have XX and then you make destroy X, X and you make twice yeah. X. It, yeah. it takes a little bit of gymnastics. And I, I feel like maybe that sounds like we're sort of harping on something that doesn't really matter. Like, people know what the cards do. People play. And people are used to Magic players harping on things that don't really matter. That's fair. <laughs> but I think as a, a cube designer, especially where I'm playing at like a lower power level where a lot of people are not familiar with the cards, I think that is really important. Like, I want people to have a good experience playing with it. So I'm, I'm not going to play... I obviously want a lot, a, a lot of complexity in, in environments, but I don't want to add complicated rules text if it isn't adding more fun. So the card's fine. It's interesting, but it adds like a, a lot of kinds of complexity that I'm not into for any of my cubes specifically. This was another example of me being bad at estimating the cube community's response because I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life on a hill talking about how wonderful and great, amazing this card is, and everyone else would be like, yeah, whatever, don't <laughs> care, not for me. You know, Is not that why you gasped when I said I love this card? Uh, no, I was just I was excited you liked it too. But no, I I was surprised that people were evaluated the same way I do. Basically, I thought people would be like, "Oh, this is like a reclamation stage, but you can't get it with Green Sun Zenith, and you can't flicker it." But in actuality, I think it's just I think it's immensely better than reclamation stage in a deck in, that you that you draft. Yeah, it's worth with Birthing Pod. It's worth uh, with you know Green Sun Zenith, but just better for all the other modes you can possibly cast yeah. it on. Yeah, this card is I. Haven't gotten it. Haven't gotten it tested. It hasn't appeared in any decks, but I imagine in many environments it will be very brutal. Yeah, it's gonna be when you cast this for five mana and destroy two artifacts and enchantments and make four one ones. That's gonna be disgusting. That is yeah. so powerful. It's totally ridiculous. All right, can we throw a little palette cleanser in there? We can Do throw it. exactly, it looks like three palette cleansers three palette in here cleansers. for you, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> no, just in terms of, uh, there's a lot of complicated cards here. I really like this Biograph. It's a two mana, five, four. Love it. Do you need to read the text? I'm sure it's not important. It's a two mana, five, four. It's also um, a dog. Plant it's a dog. plant dog, which is, again, delightful palette cleanser. If you don't sacrifice another creature when you cast it, though, you do have to pay an additional three. So it's actually a five mana, five, four, which, if you're into that, enjoy a plant dog. A great use for your unwilling ingredient. What a curve. Exactly. I'm actually very excited about this for my regular cube beta, which actually is turning out to be much lower, lower power level, where I think just a, a scalable thing where you're going to have some reasonable decisions where sometimes your opponent won't have a good answer to a 5-4 on turn two, and sometimes you'll just play a late game and it'll be a reasonable beater. I just like these simple designs. Yeah, I don't like it. It's not for me. <laughs> it's it's not for you. Not even, on, not even just power level. The design of it I actually don't love. It's... The mode of you sacrifice a thing and make a big creature is such a gambit. It really is. That it's it's the kind of Bane Slayer-y gameplay that I often don't love. Where it's like, all right, well, show me your removal spell. Otherwise, yeah. I played a two-mana 5-4, and you're going to get beat down over the whole early and middle of this game. Which, if they do show you a removal spell, then you got two for one. Because you sacrifice a creature to play this thing, and then you're going to lose, almost certainly. So... All right, how about a slightly more appealing green card? What do you think about Emergent Sequence? Andy loves this card. He was singing its praises <laughs> to me earlier. So it's a two-mana sorcery. You search your library for a basic land, put it on the battlefield tapped, and then you put a 1-1 one, one counter on it for each land that entered the battlefield this turn, including the one you just searched for, uh, and it becomes a fractal creature token. I had an, an experience early-ish in my Magic playing days where Oath of the Gatewatch came out, and it was one of the first sets that, like, I was paying attention to set reviews and trying to improve it limited, and I was not very good at the time. And I remember thinking that Wall of Resurgence was totally broken. And Wall of Resurgence is uh, two and a white for an 06 wall, and when it entered the battlefield, you put three plus one plus one counters on a land and made it a creature. 
So it was basically three mana for an 06 and a 3-3. Three, three. And I was like, this is insane. Three mana, 3-3 three, three is already great. You get this 06 totally as like a freebie. Uh, like what's the downside here? And the downside is that your lands being creatures is a real, very, very real downside. And I think a lot of newer players might look at this card and think, this is just better than Rampant Growth. It's a Rampant Growth that also gives me a creature. What's the downside? And the downside is that Rampant Growth is better than a creature. Like getting a land into play when you're talking about ramp it's like there's a reason that rampant growth costs two and lanowar elves cost one and it's that lanowar elves being creature is a liability and so this is i think basically a two mana mana dork so i'm, I'm not into it it's also just a clunky way to make a two mana mana dork i, I guess there's probably some fun synergies with plus one plus one counters where i can see people being excited about it but i think some players will have that realization with this card that i have with wall of Insurgents, which is that actually making your lands creatures is kind of a big cost yeah, well, I'll try and not let you totally squish my excitement. You're totally right, but because this is actually not get like it's not uh, enchanting a land that you already have in play. It's getting you a brand new land. Right. It doesn't set you back if uh, your opponent has a shock more than if they just destroyed your two mana dork. That is true. So I think if you're in the market for a two mana dork, that's the kind of like a two mana creature that taps for mana. I think this is a really nice option. It does fix your mana. It does interact with counter synergies. It also interacts with landfall synergies and affects that count the number of lands in play. So I actually really like this and I'm going to end up putting this in my cube over another two mana uh, creature that taps for mana. Yeah, actually, all, I think I had never really considered all of those synergies like the plus one plus one counters, uh, landfall. I think a lot of people might be interested in this, particularly because... You know, maybe they're not interested in something like Rampant Growth because Rampant Growth is just a very powerful card. And so maybe it doesn't really yeah, fit absolutely. Right. their environment. Yeah, I, I know some cube designers explicitly forbid ramp that cannot be interacted with. They don't yeah, allow Rampant yeah. Growth because it's just a land. And now if you don't have strip mines or whatever, there's no way to interact with that land. And so for those designers, this is another option at two mana. It does have to compete with a wide, 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 wide swath of two mana mana dorks. There's a ton of those in Magic's history. And so there are reasons you choose, you choose this one over another one, which which makes total sense. But a lot of options there in that in that particular slot. Now, I'll agree this next one's great, Anthony. Bookworm's <laughs> cool. All right, perfect. Bookworm, seven and a green for a worm. It's a seven, seven with trample. And when Bookworm enters the battlefield, you gain three life and draw a card. And then it has two and a green. Put Bookworm from your graveyard into your library, third from the top. It's like a little mini Palaka worm with inevitability you just keep putting your bookworm back into your library and keep doing the dang thing so i actually threw this one on here for a very specific reason and that's because green's always been a little bit of a challenge in my lower powered cube and we were talking the other day after the last draft and someone was saying well green's really hard here because i don't want to play just this palaka worm because sure it draws me a card when it dies but if it dies that was my one palaka worm uh, why would I ever play this deck? And then the, the drawing next day, a card in your cube when a Palaka Worm dies definitely feels like a big consolation prize. Right. It's like, I'm still way behind because I spent seven mana on this giant worm, which is the best threat in my deck. You Doombladed it or whatever. Uh, okay, I get to draw a card. Cool, great, love it. So my question is, do you think in a cube like mine that's much lower powered and plays the way it does, do you think a Bookworm is actually worth the additional mana to have that built-in redundancy? No, I don't think it would be great in your cube, to be honest. Okay. I don't think it would be better than Palaka Worm because it does cost more and it does have less impact immediately. I mean, gaining the life of Palaka Worm is kind of a big deal. I just think it's going to be too slow for your environment. I think your environment is too fast for this kind of eight mana inevitability engine to, to get there. All right. I think I agree. But I like the card. Perfect. It eats books. <laughs> get it? Just because you like it doesn't mean you have to put it in your cube. I want to close off green by talking about one more Commander 2021 card, and this is Paradox Zone. Four and a green for an enchantment. 
It enters the battlefield with a growth counter on it. At the beginning of your end step, double the number of growth counters on Paradox Zone, then create a 0-0 green and blue fractal creature token. Put X plus one plus one counters on it, where X is the number of growth counters on Paradox Zone, blah, 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 blah. This card, you play it for five mana. It makes a 2-2 in your end step. Then it makes a 4-4 on the next end step. Then it makes an 8 on the next end step, and so on and so forth. People are comparing this to Primordial Mist, which is a card that I adore. What do you all think of Paradox Zone? Seems more like uh, Assemble the Legion than a Primordial Mist to me. Jet, what say you? I have not closely looked at this card, partially because it has so many words on it. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be completely frank. I, I think this card is is fairly powerful. Five mana, two two is a pretty good rate, and then you know, it is rare that you'll be able to beat this card going long. I didn't plan on testing it initially. Maybe I will, but it... Wow, we're completely transforming your green section, huh? Well, <laughs> I mean, we'll see. And you're adding Bookworm as well, right? It's all abundant <laughs> yeah, harvest and paradox zones all the way down. It's just, it doesn't have a super high impact immediately, although a 2-2 is fine. Um, it's just not a card that, like, particularly excites me. It also seems like if you if you can't remove this card, you will likely just lose, which is not particularly fun play pattern. Although, you know, iCube, like, Palace Jailer, which also doesn't have many fun play patterns. It's just not a card that like particularly excites me. I don't like this as much for my design goals as other options at five mana in green. I'm talking about any number of planeswalkers. I'm talking about biogenic ooze. I'm talking about the hermits, deranged, and other one. Deep forest. <laughs> Deep forest, thank you. I don't like this as much as any of those cards. And the reason I don't is because I think ultimately it will be a lot more swingy. Enchantments are harder to answer yeah. than planeswalkers and creatures. Creatures are kind of the most susceptible and planeswalkers have the floor of always being able to be attacked even if you don't have any kind of removal so there's always lines of interaction with planeswalkers whereas paradox zone if you're playing your black red deck like good luck you're never getting rid of paradox zone so your only option now is go over the top and kill them before you get run over by giant creatures i also think that like you said it doesn't have a lot of immediate impact like i think this card's kind of bad against aggro like it's a five mana yeah. two two against aggro and then you get a 4-4 on your next end step, which means you have to take a whole other round of attacks before you get your 4-4, one little bounce spell or flame slash, and you spent five mana doing a whole lot of nothing. So because the creatures and planeswalkers are all better up front and less unbeatable in the long run, that's the sort of range I want my ramp payoffs to be operating in. And I actually, people are talking about how this card, we have a hot take from Simple Man about this card being, you know, as broken in cube as cards like Mystic Confluence and Fracture Identity, two other five drops from previous Commander products. Simple Man's hot take. Paradox Zone is going to go down as one of the strongest cube inclusions from a Commander deck ever, alongside Fractured Identity and Mystic Confluence. Without going into the power level of those cards, specifically those examples, I don't think this is going to be enormously powerful in most cubes, because it is kind of slow to get rolling. And as much as I love Primordial Mist, that card's good because it's blue. If it was green, I don't think yeah. it would be quite as good as it is in blue. And really, that mode of exiling the, the creatures with Primordial Mist to draw cards, to, to, to draw them, is very relevant. That not being here, just making kind of big, dumb tokens with no text, that makes it quite a bit worse, I think. I, I will say it's also like, the creatures get very large, but, you know, a 64-64 is functionally the same as a 32-32. Like, they can't be chump-locked. Although, yeah. you know, you get multiple of them, but it's not like this card wins on the spot. You can still die if you play it. That is really true. Like, once you get to 16-16, very, very unlikely that any growth beyond that matters at all, right? Yeah. You have a creature that is bigger than any other creature, 
pretty much in Magic's history that probably can't be allowed to hit you. Uh, and so it's like, yeah, it does hit its like maximum value pretty quickly. I mean, making a 16-16 every turn is pretty darn good, but that's not until turn 9 or whatever uh, if you played this on curve and there was no interaction. I would just much rather have something that has more immediate impact and less total inevitability. Yeah, I think I agree. For all those reasons, I'm not excited about a card that really wins more when it's winning, but doesn't offer any interesting decisions, doesn't have like a lot of interesting interaction points for your opponent. How did you feel about this whole fractal token situation? Maybe that's something we should talk about before we move away from this set. I didn't bother (laughs) thinking about it much at all. I know some people are mad because they're not actually fractals or whatever. I wouldn't say I'm mad, but when I heard, like, they spoiled, like, oh, one of the mechanics, they're going to create these fractal tokens, and I just had this horrible image in my mind of, like, the Mandelbrot set with googly eyes. Magic players doing (laughs) abstract algebra on the table. And so I kind of expected, like, either I was going to, like, hate this and think it was abysmal, or it would be, like, the best, most beautiful magic illustration and, like, mechanics I'd ever encountered. Uh, And I think the result is kind of in the middle. It's, like, a lot better than I expected it might be, but not great. I I don't care about the illustrations or the design or whatever in this particular regard. Mechanically, I would have loved it if Fractal Tokens like broke up, like had some meaning. It's just a zero, zero some fractal. It's, it's just a zero zero. It's another name for a zero zero that comes with counters on it, which we've had many examples of. Which, sure, I get the flavor implications, but yeah, I'm sure through place pl- through playtesting, they might have been like make a one one token, and then each of those one one tokens makes another one one token, and it just ended up being way too complicated. But the the fact that this illustration in particular is just really, really bad, uh, really turns me off. It. I don't want to, I don't want to drag artists but the art direction on commander products I feel like I could pick out art from a commander product versus art from a core set without any other context like if yeah. you showed me future you know core set coming out in the fall and commander product from next year to show me the art I think I'd be able to tell it always feels like the commander the budget for the for the commander art is a little bit lower than the budget for the core set art is Are is, you is, saying is, that, is the impression I get Are you saying that triplicate titan doesn't have any strong <laughs> art directions <laughs> That one I actually like more than more than I would expect. I swapped that in for Ancient Stone Idol in uh, in the Degenerate Micro Cube, but I Ancient Stone Idol is a classic card that I just loathed the art on. I thought it was terrible. Yeah, Did nothing not to speak to what the card was. Triplicate Titan I actually like quite a bit. The lighting's good. It just seems like the budget's different. I think you're definitely the right. The budget and art direction is I mean, different on commander sets. I'll say, like, if we're looking at this current line of products, like, they have the main set. There are the Mystical Archive cards. There's alternate versions. There's the commander set. Like, the amount of on. art that has been commissioned for, like, this family of products is kind of insane. And the fact that they're allocating more of the resources, if that is, in fact, what they're doing, and I strongly agree that seems like what it is. <laughs> um, oh, man. Like, this, what's that Hedron Crawler or whatever from... It doesn't matter. <laughs> there have definitely been crystalline some... Crystalline Crawler? It could have been Crystalline Crawler. Some of these commander illustrations where, yeah, we don't want to drag the artists. They, I'm sure, got a, l- a lower budget, and that's what was reasonable. Okay, um, but, but I think, like, Ink Shield is really cool. It's not to say that none of them are cool. It's just, you know, it's a, it's a pattern I've noticed. Well, I didn't go to art school. So. It's, not, it's, not, it's not to say that within that budget, the artists still can't go above and beyond. It also, it might just not even be a budget thing. It might just be that, like, the world oh, is sure, so fleshed yeah. out. The art direction is so complete for the set. There's a lot of creative direction spent mapping out these schools and planning everything out that with that much more direction, the art directors are going to know a lot more what they want. They're going to be able to say specifically, here's what works, here's what doesn't work. Maybe with Commander Prox, it's more like, well, I mean, we just, sure, we're the first draft that we're going to go yeah. with because we don't have time to pour into this creative direction because it's just Commander product relative to the regular set. I think the valuable summary, if anything, of that is... 
wow, magic is complicated, and we see a lot of the complexity here, especially when we're looking at some of these little details that, like, they happen for a reason. Yeah. All right, we're over two hours in, and we oh are just starting the gold cards, which <laughs> is going to take us probably another two hours. So we gotta we gotta chop chop on these bad boys. Let's start with the command cycle. This is ooh, I mean, you know, I love these cards. You don't even have to you don't have to start uh, to know. Let's I love hear these some cards. modes. <laughs> these are modal cards. I mean, the commands. What was the first modal card that was named command something? Was it was it just in the cons block, or was it before that? It was Ravnica, right? Khan's block has all the dragon lord commands. Are those not the original commands? You have like Azorius. Oh, command. I thought you were talking about like charm. Gotcha. No, I'm talking about commands. Yeah. The ones that are in Strixhaven, Jet. Duh. Uh, so the original <laughs> command uh, was word of command. Oh, I actually used to have a, a copy of one of those cards. I think they're worth like hundreds of dollars now, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, funny. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Weird flex, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to. I sold it at some point because I'm dumb. Anyway, this is a cycle of modal gold cards in the colors of the schools. And each of them give you four options, and you get to choose two, which is already, I mean, just that structure is has a lot of potential for power, I think, because four modes is a lot of modes. That's a lot of things a card can do. And anytime you're choosing two modes, you that means the number of combinations of two modes you can choose in this card means that it has a lot of actual modes. Like, the way this card can play out has many, many, many permutations, because you Six can choose... Modes. You get to choose combinations of all these things, which is great. So, which should we read all of them? Which one do you think we should read, Jet? Uh, I think we should probably focus on Prismari, Witherbloom, and Quandrix, because those are the ones that the, the community really likes. I think with, with quick mention to Lorehold and Silverquill Command, I think there's a hot take related to Silver Silverquill Command, where um, uh, someone mentions how they're planning on using it to sort of expand their Orzhov section a little bit, which I think is, is interesting. Yeah, I think and one of the people reasons... specifically not think of Orzhov as purely an aggressive strategy by giving them right. a big kind of modal card. Jordan's hot take. One of my pet color pairs in my legacy cube is Orzhov, uh, thanks mostly to its flexibility. Black and white are the two colors that have the largest range in archetype support. I find that their cheap removal and disruption can be utilized across the board. Yet, I frequently hear my drafters categorizing it as an aggressive color pair. I think this may be in part due to my Orzhov gold cards. Uh, Tide Hollow Skuller, Lingering Souls, and Soren Lord of Innistrad could be signaling this to them. My solution is to signal flexibility with an awesome new modal spell from Strixhaven, and that is Silver Quill Command. This card helps aggro decks punch through and grind out value, while also giving mid-range and control decks a solid two-for-one. I'm always excited to see cards that communicate new information to drafters, and I'm interested to see how Silver Quill Command affects the conversation. Plus, it's fun as a designer to lean into utility derived by social aspects outside of what the card does once it's actually in a deck. I think one of the reasons that, that people are sort of less interested in these cards is because they are more expensive. So, you know... If people are looking at it from a power level standpoint, Lorehold is five mana and Silverquill is four, whereas Prismari, Witherbloom, Quandrix are, are three or less. And so that does bring them down a little bit. And so Lorehold and Silverquill get an average rating of 1.9 and 10% of respondents are, are testing them. All right, so I'll give the I'll read the rules text in, Jet. Why don't you hit me with the, uh, the testers and rank afterwards? So sure. Prismari command, one, blue-red, three total mana, four an instant. Choose two. It deals two damage to any target. Target player draws two cards and discards two cards. Target player creates a treasure token and destroy target artifact. Yeah, and so this is the most popular command. It's actually one of the most popular cards of the set, the third most popular. 
So 64% of respondents are testing it and it has an average rating of 2.4, which is pretty good. I think a lot of people are, are excited for this card. And then we have Witherbloom, the black green command. This one just costs black green, so two converted mana costs. It's a sorcery. Again, choose two. Target player mills three cards, then you return a land card from your graveyard to your hand. Destroy target, non-creature, non-land permanent with mana value two or less. Target creature gets minus three, minus one to end of turn. Target opponent loses two life and you gain two life. Yeah, this one is significantly less popular than Prismari, so it has an average rating of 2.2 and only 20% of uh, respondents are testing it. And basically tied with it in terms of the community response is Quandrix Command. One, blue-green, so three total mana for an instant. Once again, choose two. You can either return target creature or planeswalker to its owner's hand, counter target artifact or enchantment spell, put two plus one plus one counters on target creature, or target player shuffles up to three target cards from their graveyard into their library. All what right. do you think of these cards, Jet? Uh, I like them. I like them all quite a bit. I think pretty much all of them are... are pretty good at relatively any any power level. I think Prismari is the most powerful, mostly because it's pretty easy to see how this is a two for one. I think when we think about these commands, part of the, the calculus here is how often will this gain me card advantage? And we have precedent for Prismari command in Kolagon's command, right? Deal two to something and destroy an artifact is, is a pretty good mode. And the fact that you can get a treasure if on future turns you need to power out something a little bit earlier, uh, or if you need some card filtering later in the game, I think makes this card um, pretty good, and I'm, I'm excited to to cube it. Me too. I have long been a defender of Electrolyze. I know a lot of people have moved off of it, but the basically like just a burn spell that draws cards is great. And the one thing I have been a little bit on the fence about with Electrolyze is that it really, really kind of dumpsters one toughness decks. Like if you're playing an aggro deck or a mana dork deck, there are certain sequences where you open on two mana dorks and you get electrolyzed and you just you are so far behind at that point that electrolyze was a spot that electrolyze was a chill three for one and you are also set back really far on tempo so it's a huge tempo and a huge value blowout play i really like prismari command over electrolyze because it will do a lot of the same things you're still going to get to draw two cards and i think draw two discard two is also pretty powerful card selection in most decks even if you don't have much graveyard stuff going on it's not card advantage i think it is very different than drawing a card, but you know I've been testing with this card a little bit, and I found that mode to be pretty relevant. And like you said, when you get to deal two and destroy an artifact, that's a really good spot to be, and you're going to be really happy with that spell. I also kind of love the treasure mode, which I think a lot of people overlook and are like, oh, you know, dinky, whatever, like fall back if I have nothing else to do. But I think Lotus Petal is a powerful card, and while it's most powerful on the first couple turns of the game, where you get to, where the Difference in one mana is a much bigger difference. You know, a, a three drop on turn two or a, three, or a four drop on turn three is much better than six mana on turn five or whatever. I think there's going to be a lot of times, and I discovered this even in testing, where making a treasure token on Edison speed on your opponent's end step, knowing what's in your hand and what you're going to untap with, uh, is going to mean you're not just going to get to kill something. You're going to then get to have a huge like burst of tempo uh, where you're going to get to really take advantage of that treasure token. So I'm excited about that mode too. Yeah, that, that hidden that hidden information part of the treasure is actually super important, right? Because your opponent on turn three, they might say, well, I'll deploy this Planeswalker because my opponent's only going to have four mana, and I trust that future cards in my hands will be able to, to control that. But if you suddenly and untap they down and tick, to play... And you kill their Planeswalker, and you make a treasure token, and you play whatever, yeah. Yeah, just the, the ability to hide from your opponent that you're going to have five mana on turn four, I think, is, is really important. Do you have something to say about these commands, Anthony? Uh, no, I think you guys summar summarized it pretty well. Um, I, I think they're all either 
a little bit higher power or like they really ne necessitate a very efficient low to the ground environment, especially with like the Prismari command and with Bloom command to really make them work. Uh, so I don't think they're going to find uh, a home in any of my cubes, but I'm excited to play them in a lot of others. I'm actually maybe more excited about Witherbloom Command than I am Prismari Command. And this is a matter of, like, slots, as it were. There's so many Izzet cards I love that another oh, yeah. Izzet card I love is like, all right, fine, great, but I got to cut another card I love to get this thing in there, or I got to really expand my Isaac section more. I always feel like I'm a little bit struggling for Golgari cards or Witherbloom cards, as it were. And Witherbloom Command is going to have the potential to be a two-mana, two-for-one still pretty often. Again, the lower to the ground your environment is. Getting yeah. to destroy a non-creature, non-land permanent with converted magic two or less and getting to kill something with one toughness is how you turn this into a, uh, a two-for-one. You can also get a land card back to your hand, which could be relevant depending on the board state. So I'm quite high on this card. And if anything, I expect it to be a little bit blowouty against aggro. I mean, this is going to be... You're playing a black-green mid-range deck. You like lead on a mana dork. They're on the play. They play a bunch of stuff. You're going to get to two-for-one in aggro deck a lot of the times on turn two with this, which is pretty messed up. Just, like, kill Smuggler's Copter, kill your Falcon Wrath Gorger. Yeah. Can you possibly lose that game? It's, it's going to be hard. I, I also think that um, Collective Brutality, which I could just... I could record a whole podcast talking about how much I love Collective Brutality. It's, Good news, you have a podcast about Magic. It's got to be one of my favorite Magic cards. It's so great. And I'm surprised how much I feel like the Drain 2 mode on Collective Brutality, the same mode we see here on Witherbloom Command actually feels very relevant where i'm happy to cash in an extra land to drain my opponent for two late in the game so i don't think that mode is something that should be totally overlooked it's kind of like the treasure mode on prismari command where you'll expect you're only going to do it when you have no targets for the other modes but i'm pretty excited about that too and think there's going to be times where it's going to be pretty backbreaking how about quandra's command jet are you high on this card uh, I'm not really, I think partially because of the, the sort of guild competition that you mentioned. I don't particularly have balanced guilds within my queue, but I do think Quadrant's Command is significantly worse than all of the other options in my queue, and I have not yet cut Oko. And so I think for me, it's also the fact that Quadrant's Command, all the modes are significantly more narrow than a lot of the, the other modes on Prismari and Witherbloom. Uh, like countering... Uh, is it artifacts and enchantments that can be useful but um, you know your opponent could just play something like a like a creature and then you're forced to to bounce something and put a 1-1 counter put two 1-1 counters on on your creature or something like that i think there will be times where the graveyard one feels like a complete blowout but i think overall the modes are, are much more narrow and um, i'm not as interested in it yeah i didn't actually think it was more narrow until you said it but now looking at it it is the only one where all four of the modes need targets. You can't... None of these modes yeah. just work, right? Prismari Command, you can always deal two to your opponent, make a treasure token. The Witherbloom Command, you can always uh, mill yourself for three and put a land back into your hand and drain your opponent for two. And this one, you can't do anything without targets, right? And sometimes it only asks there to be things in a graveyard. And I, I think people should know that if you're playing like a, a combo-oriented cube or a cube that has a lot of graveyard synergy, being able to shuffle your opponent's things into their into the library like this is effectively grave hate uh yeah. at, on, on that fourth mode it's not just inevitability which i think is relevant um, i'm playing this in the degenerate micro cube because of that fourth mode primarily uh it's instant speed grave hate and also instant speed stack your deck pretty much i mean it's shuffled but you know put, fill your deck with a lot of action for your really kind of small deck size i think the main appeal for this in fairer cubes of any power level is if you're looking for combat tricks with better floors uh because yeah. the Put two plus one plus one counters and target creature at instant speed. 
it's a cool combat trick. If you're into making combat tricks playable, that's cool. One of the downsides of combat tricks is they oftentimes do nothing or are really bad in the face of instant speed removal. And if you're looking for combat tricks with other outs, other modes, I think this fits the bill quite nicely because you don't have to use it as a combat trick or you can use it as a combat trick and something else, which gives it more flexibility. But outside of that, I'm not super excited about it and I'm not touching it in my own cube. Except for the Degenerate Micro Cube, where I expect it to shine. This is why you have to have so many cubes. You got, oh, I gotta have a cube for every card. That's how I feel. A cube for every card. I'm actually surprised. I don't want to get too much into this, but I'm actually surprised that you think it's worth three mana in the Degenerate Micro Cube. You don't want to talk about the Degenerate Micro Cube a bunch yet? We can talk about it all you want. I love talking about the Degenerate Micro Cube. We're only two and a half hours into this thing. How, long, how much time do <laughs> you want to spend on it? Act, act two, the Degenerate Micro Cube. Very briefly, just to touch on it. <laughs> this is a thing that we had to learn by playtesting the cube a lot, which is that Obviously, on first blush, mana efficiency is so critical in the Degenerate Micro Cube because you have people that can win the game on turn one, right? And so there's lots of free counterspells, lots of one mana, zero mana effects because you have to be able to do stuff constantly. However, there is a class of cards that basically amounts to inevitability. And the slot Conjurex Command took in the Degenerate Micro Cube was over uh, Serene Remembrance, which was a card that mm. was just there for inevitability it was never interacting with your opponent it was only saying if our answers if our answers mutually answer all of each other's everything else i'm going to win the long game because i'm going to shuffle cards back into my library and just basically grind you out so this I, it came from the realization that a the inevitability doesn't have to be infinite like being able to recycle your graveyard once is oftentimes more than enough you don't have to do it any number of times. And the value of a card like Serene Remembrance and Memory's Journey, other cards, I guess, that, that the cube has played in the past or still does, is that they get, let you reshuffle a bunch, and it gives you this, like, well, eventually I'm going to win. But you actually don't need that. You really only need, like, the one reshuffle. And so is the realization of that, and also that you still need the free counterspells in your deck. You can't rely on Quadrus Command to counter their combo or, you know, whatever, because it's not fast enough. It, is, it does cost three mana. But... You will reach some point in the game where you've got three mana. You know, if you've countered the first the first attempt for them to do their thing and then they recycle their graveyard and are trying to do it again, now you've got three mana up and you can actually use your Quandrix command. So I actually think it's going to work quite nicely. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, and it's actually weird. Because of Oko and Quandrix command, blue-green is becoming like the premier control combination in the Degenerate Micro Cube, which it's not in any other environment that I've seen, right? Blue-green always tends to play this more proactive, mid-rangey, rampy kind of strategy in most cubes, but... There is no mid-range. There's no ramp in the Degenerate Micro... Well, no fair ramp. It's all, you know, it's all Mishra's workshops and stuff. And so blue-green, in combination with these counterspells, Oko, Quandrix Command, and frankly, stuff like Scavenging Ooze, also very relevant in control, in that you get to eat your opponent's graveyard and stop all of their recursion. It's weird, but it's it's becoming kind of the premier guild for control. And I kinda, I'm kind of into it. I'm digging it. Was that long enough of a digression? Should I talk more about the Degenerate Micro Cube jet? Yeah, let's talk more about it. Let's uh, Let's go four hours, I think. All right, what are the next gold cards, Jet? Uh, so the next gold card is one that's pretty popular. It's Rip Apart, which is red and a white for a uh, sorcery. And you choose one, it either deals three damage to target creature or planeswalker, or you destroy target artifact or enchantment, right? So this is like peak modality. And, uh, and this gets an average rating of, of 2.4 from our respondents, and 50% of, uh, of players are testing it. How do you think this compares to Lightning Helix? I think that it is probably better probably better yeah i think probably better than lightning helix i think the ability to destroy target artifact or enchantment actually matters a lot particularly in control matchups and so i do think that the the flexibility there makes it better than helix 
But in my own environment, I also don't think Felix is particularly good. And so I am testing this card, but it's not something that excites me. In my opinion, the card is good in terms of power level, but it's also not a card that draws you into Boros, which is, to be quite honest, I think my my pet dream for Wizards, if I could have them design one cube card, it would be a, um, a Boros card that drew people into the color pair. How do you think Rip Apart compares to a Braid? A Braid, I think it is significantly closer, and I might even say worse. I think the, um, the instant speed nature of a Braid plus its modality, I think makes it probably a little bit better. And, you know, of course, the fact that it's monocolored, I think, is the biggest uh, part of that. And so I do think the card is worse than, than a Braid. I included Rip Apart in my testing pool when we were testing some of the cards from Strixhaven. I don't know if I'm going to find a slot for it in the cube because I just don't think it's enough better. My bar for gold cards is they have to be enough better than their monocolored options mm -hmm. to feel like it's worth giving up a monocolored slot, which is more flexible in the draft, more flexible in deck building for a gold slot. And being able to do damage to a Planeswalker or destroy an enchantment for sorcery speed, I feels like kind of a even-steven trade-off. And then when you look at the fact that it's red-white instead of just mono-red, I don't know how excited I am about this card. I'm certainly not as excited as most other people are about it, because this is, again, the fifth most tested card in the entire set, ranks pretty highly. But ultimately, it's just, I don't know. It's not, it's not doing it for me, I don't think. Yeah, I agree, and I'll, I'll echo what Jet said as well, where even if a gold card is more efficient, if it's just a one-for-one -one removal spell, even if it's flexible, that's not something that is going to excite me or excite my players to draw them into a, a guild. So like, I, I think we need enough of that removal to make an environment work, but I'd rather have those like less exciting cards be more flexible, be monocolored so they can get played more, uh, so the, the cards that are going to not be played as much that are a little bit more, you know, the splashy gold cards can can be splashy and be exciting. This is a good topic for a future podcast, I think. There are some designers that have this mentality where reasons, not rewards. They think their gold cards should be reasons for being in a color and not rewards for being in the color, as in it just wheels every time and you always get it if you happen to have staked out that color pair because no one's ever going to take the mm -hmm. lightning helix unless they're exactly Boros or whatever. And I don't know how much that thought technology holds water for me and the, the distinction that I hear often is that, like, oh, if it's, like, a one-for-one removal spell or something that is, like, kind of replaceable with a monocolored card, then it's a reward. And if it's something that is irreplaceable, a totally unique effect, then it's a reason. I really think it just comes down to power level, though. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm happy to run one-for-one -one removal in my gold section if it's enough better than monocolored options. Like, I'm really excited about Assassin's Trophy, Abrupt Decay. Like, these cards are great. I don't expect them to go anywhere for a while for me because it does do a lot more than the monocolored options in those color respective colors do. I just don't think Rip Apart does. I think it's better than the white options at two mana because white doesn't get to do a lot of this stuff normally. Mm -hmm. But compared to the red options, just like a burn spell or in a braid, it's not giving me enough more flexibility that I'm going to prioritize it in a draft. And so I, I don't know if it's, it's I don't know if it gets it for me for that reason. But it's not because it's a removal spell. I'm, I'm into removal. I'm happy to have a boring quote unquote removal spell as a gold card as long as it's powerful enough. Yeah, I just want a red white fractured entity. Yikes. But give it haste and then uh, sacrifice it at the end of turn. Easy. Now it's red. Easy. Vanishing Verse is another gold single target removal spell. This is just black white for an instant to exile target monocolored permanent. I'm higher on this one because I do think that is enough better than ultimate price. Than ultimate price or any other Doom Blade or any of the things you get in white at two mana. 
So I, I think I'm going to try this one out. I don't know if I'm going to keep it alongside Vindicate, replace Vindicate. I, I, Vindicate still holds a an important place in my heart, and I do like land destruction in measured amounts and the the like decision of I'm ahead right now. I bet if I destroy a land, uh, my opponent did nothing last turn. I'm ahead right now. I bet if I take a land off of them, I get to close this game out. It's a decision I like my players being able to make. I think I'm higher on this than Rip Apart, but mm. I don't know. It's close. What do you think, Jet? All right, Andy, this is going to be my Abundant Harvest. I think this card is great, and I think that you should try it out. Great. I will do it, Jet. Wow. Wow, that was far easier than, <laughs> than the reverse. Talk um, about why it's great. Yeah, I mean, I just think I love the, the templating of it. I think it's super clean from an aesthetic perspective. I love the art. I really like the way that it's like gold and black within the art matches like the frame and the and like the black card border. None of that has to do with power level, but I do think that's very cool. Uh, but I also just think that it's a it's just a very good card. The fact that it's uh, instant speed can answer most problematic things that will come up, whether it's planeswalkers or, or creatures, I think matters quite a bit. Uh, and I'm just overall very excited for it on power level. And then I'm also just kind of excited to have a good Orzhov card. I think secondary only to Boros, I've been really wanting um, a strong Orzhov card that pulls people into colors. I don't think Luris particularly counts. Um, even though the card is very strong. Yeah, and so I, overall, I just love this card. I think it's actually one of my my favorite cards of the set. I think it's good, too. I'm I'm excited to test it. I do feel like my gold section, as, as much as I am happy to run removal, my gold section is becoming kind of just removal dot deck. And the only reason that concerns me is just because I wonder if the, like, four-plus color control deck becomes a little too appealing because all of the payoffs are being in that deck are these efficient removal spells which enable that strategy kind of inherently. But um, I, I'm into it. I'll play it. Well, that was easy. Anthony? I'm going to pass on this for my cubes for the same reason as Rip Apart. That's just not what I'm looking for from gold cards. I, if Rip Apart was, was instant speed, I would be all over it. The Sorcerer's yeah. really gets me. I just imagine, you know, them playing a Signet on turn two and me staring at my Rip Apart in hand with two open mana and being like, well, guess I'll untap and waste my whole next <laughs> turn. You know, it's, it's going to be a whole thing. One more gold card here. This is... One of those interesting cards, I think, from the whole set. We do have a hot take about it, which I'll insert here. This is Expressive Iteration. It is blue-red for a sorcery. So two mana value for a sorcery. Look at the top three cards of your library. Put one of them into your hand, one of them in the bottom of your library, and exile one of them. You may play the exiled card this turn. Nate's hot take. So here's my hot take. Expressive Iteration is subtly the best card in Strixhaven. It's not flashy like any of the rares or mythics with a million lines of text, but I think Expressive Iteration should at least be considered for any blue-red section, especially for cubes which are intentionally pushing the power level, because this card gets better when you have access to free cards like Moxon, Black Lotus, or Gitaxian Probe. I'm most excited to try this as a Storm support card. I think it's a decent amount stronger than a simple two-mana draw two like Knight's Whisper because it digs one card deeper to help either sculpt your hand on turn two or three before you combo, or it can add extra velocity when you try to storm off, allowing you to dig past a card which isn't useful on that turn for whatever reason, something like an extra land. I'm also happy that this card is blue-red because I've found in my peasant combo cube that when I attempt a storm, I'll often end up with extra red mana from rituals, which I can't put into anything. 
I think this card is subtly a great storm card, as well as a card anyone should be happy to play in a tempo or control shell. I'm super hyped on expressive iteration, so what do you think? If you have the mana available to play that card this turn, you can also play it as a land, so you could have a land drop available. It's kind of a two-mana divination. Sorcery speed, draw two, but draw two from the top three, so even better than divination. You get a little bit of card selection. I think this card's really strong. <laughs> I, I, it's This is another example of, like, there are no shortage of is it cards I'm really, really excited about, and so I don't know if I'm going to be able to find space for this one, but... I do think it's really strong, but I've heard some other people be like totally down on it. Like, why would I pay, you know, this much mana for like a fancy cantrip, basically, yeah. which I see that argument. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely see that argument, honestly, for my own cubes. I think that's kind of where I'm going to land, where it is. Uh, it comes down to kind of a bread and butter effect. And I, I do want the the gold cards, which like are really hard for me to cut down my gold. Yeah, sections you love your gold section. So I want them to be a little bit something that feels a little bit splashier. But I think as far as the way the, that it plays and the power level, it is, I think, a lot better than it looks like. And more than that, it sort of scales with the game in a nice way. So it can just be on t turn two, basically a cantrip that lets you dig three cards deep, or it can turn into a divination later in the game that, again, lets you dig a little deeper than a divination. All in all, it adds up to a pretty nice card. So in, in terms of the, the cube community's perspective, it's not a super popular card. Only 12% of respondents are testing it, and it have, has an average rating of, of 2.1. I think in terms of my own opinion, well, I guess I have a question for, for both of you. How much of the strength of this card depends on your ability to play the exiled card, right? Like, how much do you need the two-for-one for it to be worth it? Is this a card that you're not playing until the middle of the game to... Well, I guess you can hit lands, but is this a card that, that needs to hit that two-for-one to be worth it? I feel like in most environments you do want to be hitting the two-for-one, but the fact that it is effectively a modal card and you can hit it on turn two if, or cast it on turn two if you really need to gives it a lot more flexibility. Yeah, I think it's essential. If I'm not playing that exiled mm -hmm. card, then I consider this a whiff, basically. Like, I, I messed up. In my mind, I would say this is basically a three drop because I don't want to play this without a land drop still available to me because that's the easiest way to use that exiled card no matter what. You can right. just draw a card, play a land, and bottom the third card you don't want. Obviously, you could not find a land, and that's kind of a bummer. That, that will happen sometimes. But that's where I'm looking at this. So even though it is two mana, it's kind of like a... To me, I'm kind of reading it as a divination that like gives you a mana back when it resolves almost. <laughs> like, you know, it's a divination. Well, I mean, that's true of divination as well if you draw a land. I would play this card on turn three, even with lands in hand, hoping to hit a land. Right? I'm, I'm not going to play this sure. on turn two unless yeah. I absolutely have to for some reason. Even if I have no lands in hand on right. turn two, I'll probably wait till turn three to do it because I'm almost guaranteed to find a land and then hopefully and draw much another likely, land. Much more likely to hit a two drop or something. Right. It's a card I don't really want to play unless I have access to three mana. And again, at sorcery speed, I really think this is really only going to shine in quite proactive decks where you're happy to spend your mana yeah. at sorcery speed to do this. I don't see like a Jeskai control deck being very high on expressive iteration because at what point where you have access to three mana, are you going to be happy spending two of it at sorcery speed instead of holding up counter magic, holding up removal or doing something else? I just, I think those kinds of more expensive card advantage spells just don't fit with low to the ground, efficient gameplay. There's really not much space for them. So I'm not going to test it event ultimately for that reason. I think it will be very strong in tempo decks or in like, a, you know, mostly red aggro decks, splashing some blue. I'd be really happy with it there. Uh, or like even like a teamer deck. If you're, you know, going full teamer, I could see it being really strong there. Where I don't like it is in blue red control, Jeskai control, Grixis control, anything like that. I think it gets pretty bad. 
in my environment at least. And that that's my overall evaluation of it. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. Um, it actually reminds me a lot of Charter Course, but obviously being multiplayer makes it significantly worse. Again, the big thing about Charter Course is I'm more than happy to just, if I don't have a counter spell in hand, I'm more than happy to just shoot off a Charter Course on turn two. Because I'm And if I'm playing a control deck, like I'll play Charter Course in my control deck. I'm not as happy with it there as I am in a more proactive deck, but I'll still play it. And they're on turn isn't two. It, isn't it this better on turn two? Because you still get to dig yeah, three I, cards deep. I guess you don't get to discard from your whole hand. Yeah, just, That's interesting. Getting discard from your whole hand is very different, yeah. I think. Yeah. You get, you get the full sort of hand sculpting. And also, like, none of this puts anything in the graveyard. Like, it just exiles and puts things in the bottom of your library. True. And you can use things in the graveyard a non-zero amount of the time with Delve and stuff like that. So I'm much more happy to play Charter Chorus on turn two with nothing else to do than I am to play this on turn two with nothing else to do in my control deck. And, and the monocard thing is actually the bigger thing, like you said, Jet. But yeah. I think it's a really cool card. But for that reason, it's just the sorcery speed card advantage that doesn't affect the board and costs more than one mana is, I think, really challenging to, to find slots for. That's it for gold cards, which is most of the cards. We have. We made it. We have two colorless cards in land that I think are Anthony additions. Uh, so first of all, we have, uh, well, let's start with this Zephyr Boots, uh, this equipment. So it's one mana, equip two, uh, equip creature has flying, and when it deals combat damage to a player, draw a card, and then discard a card. I was actually pretty down on this card in all contexts, like in limited and for cube. Oh, really? But after seeing it play a little bit and hearing other people's experiences with it, I think it's actually pretty interesting and hits on a lot of different points. Basically just being a not super efficient way to actually punch through damage but still relevant and also being able to cycle some cards just uh adds adds a lot of opportunity to the late game this is kind of a class of card too. these equipments that provide some curiosity-esque style effect i'm thinking of like skeleton key mask of memories a really messed up one that one's super Mm -hmm. powerful but there's a couple of these effects uh that i I mostly am familiar with these because I use them in my Goblin EDH deck so I can <laughs> generate some card advantage in mono red. And I think it's is a pretty good contribution to that suite of cards. The flying in addition to the rattlesnake or curiosity ability where you do something when you damage your opponent, it's a really big upgrade. So I think this card's probably pretty good and limited. And if you're in a lower powered cube and looking for some more evasion or some more incremental card advantage in colorless, then I could see it being a real role player. So is this a one manners one mana smuggler's copter? No. Yeah. It's a one mana smuggler's <laughs> copter that you don't have to crew, so it's a little bit better. Exactly. Actually. <laughs> you actually you can crew the smuggler's copter with it if you want. I mean, equip. Oh sure. Yeah, you, you can put your boots on your <laughs> you helicopter. Can put the boots in the copter. You can put your boots on your helicopter. And the flavor magic, actually baby. really works because they will fall off the copter, which they will fall off a regular helicopter. I love when people Don't get mad when they like, oh, we're gonna introduce extra IP into magic, and it's like you're gonna pollute our perfectly <laughs> sacrosanct IP. It's like I put boots on a helicopter and you're mad that we're gonna get some other IP in this thing. This is already a hodgepodge. It's already a mess up in here. Fair point. Are we really going to end this whole episode talking about the campuses, Anthony? Uh, I think the campuses are great. Great. Well, uh, bring us home. On I a know high note. a lot of people that maybe are in this room don't enjoy tapped lands, uh, and I think that's fair. There's a lot of reasons not to want to play tapped lands, <laughs> but I do really enjoy. I really enjoy lands that also have more abilities, basically add more decision points to the game. Uh, and four mana scry one is just fine. I think this, these really don't do much in high power environments where like there's just so many opportunities for card advantage. But in my main cube, like constraining card advantage so that uh, a lot of mechanics that otherwise wouldn't really do anything meaningful uh, is, is a big part of what I'm trying to do. Uh, so having more mana sinks that let you 
get this pseudo card advantage through scrying is I think going to be pretty relevant. So I'm probably going to end up playing two of them and probably not the ones that I would have preferred because there's only five of them, but I think they'll work well. And that's Strixhaven and Commander 2021, folks. In three hours. Uh, what? What? Do you want to talk about the snarls or the basic lands? That's that's all. Everything that's below here. <laughs> no, I, I, maybe we should have just like done the colorless cards before the gold cards because the gold cards were kind of like the whole thing in this set. Well, we really only talked I about guess I one cycle, it. one cycle, well, and two removal spells. We already talked so meta about. You can cut all that. I out. can't edit. You can cut all this. No, out. it's it's all in there. Just cut everything. It's all out. in there now. Maybe if we, we were better podcast producers, we would have thought to do yeah, that. Maybe. So we didn't finish talking about the campuses. Wow. Mwah. Slamming wow. the campus. We really did only talk about a pretty small fraction of the gold cards. This this set is really, really heavily gold. And, and I think that's reasonable that we're not going as deep into them because, I mean, this really highlights for uh, a limited set when they want to go all in on these specific guilds. They really only try and do five of them at a time. They Even don't the try. schools, and- Anthony? Correct. Uh, they don't try want to try and do all all ten schools at the same time. Sorry, all ten colleges. Did you say schools? Did you miscorrect me? <laughs> Are they, I mean, isn't a college type of school? Andy, Andy went to it? art school. Yeah, we went to art school. We didn't go to art college. Yeah, all right. Um, we did actually. And and so that's I think a testament to the fact that yeah, it is really hard to make all ten guilds work at the same time uh, with this level of gold card. So a lot of cube designers don't go that deep. So I think there's a good reason that a lot of cube designers will also not be going as deep into these particular guilds. Also, a lot of them are these multi-faced, complicated, extreme Dude, we didn't talk about any of those. We talk about any of We really just, yeah. Oh, my God. I just, I... <laughs> I, I think I think the way to what what to how to end that is to say the the survey is really interesting. Like, there'll be a lot more detail if you actually want to dig into the data, how people rated things. For a lot of reasons, we're not excited to put a lot of them into our own cube designs, and, and frankly, we're not interested most in Most people aren't them. either. I mean, yeah. the yeah. the top double face card is Plarg, Dean of Chaos, and Augusta, Dean of Order. Only got thirty out of two hundred and three testers, and I'm restricted, which is quite low. So, I mean, either people are primarily looking at like power optimizing, either most people are making the evaluation that these cards are not actually that powerful, which I think is kind of wrong because they are. Like, the flexibility in the draft you get by having just, like, a black card and a gold card in the same slot for if you're a black deck or a white deck, I think is very powerful. People are probably overlooking that. I honestly think most of it is that people are also tired of reading these cards and don't want to add the complexity to their cubes. And so that's where I'm at, I know. Like, I honestly, I read them all once, technically, but but (laughs) it would have taken a lot, I mean a lot, to get me to put any of these cards in my cube. It took a card like Valky, Mm -hmm. which I love the front side of Valky so much. That's what it took to get me to put that card in my cube because it has a whole back phase of people on whatever tibble who cares you almost cast it off a treasure token i did almost cast off a treasure token from prismari command in my grixis tempo deck which was pretty sick so you know that's gonna happen sometimes should we actually end anthony i know we did our mechanics episode two weeks ago and you were like we got to the end and you were like oh we have to stop already i have all these other things i want to mention of all these other hidden mechanics do you want to do a quick game of anthony identifies patterns and point out the other not so explicit mechanics in the set. No, it's a long list. All right, great. Well, we're gonna hang it up there. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I actually, to I actually have one more. I do have one more question. Uh, what right. are you guys' favorite cards from the set? Abundant Harvest. Anthony, what's yours? That's not in the set. Okay, if, if we're not counting Abundant <laughs> oh, Harvest, wow. If we're not counting Abundant Harvest, then it's probably Elite Spellbinder. Probably. Yeah, I'm gonna go Elite Spellbinder. Anthony, what's yours? You know, I'm looking at the cards that I'm actually planning on adding to my cube, this uh, very neglected list, and none of these cards are really exciting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I am going to enjoy Frost Trickster, I'm going to enjoy Emergent Sequence and Plumb the Depths, but that's not, that's not what you want. 
Jet, are you most excited about Vanishing Verse? What's the card you're most thrilled to put in your cube? Uh, from Strict Shades and Vanishing Verse, but I think overall it's probably Pest Infestation. That one's up there for me, too. Probably below Lead Spellbinder, though. But, boy, that Abundant Harvest? Ooh! Ooh! Okay, you know what I'll say? I'll say Belladross Witherbloom. Do I have to read that one? Is no. the big dragon? Uh, <laughs> do you like a Verdant Force? Here's a Dragon Verdant Force. We did it. We kept it under three hours, just barely. We'll see how much I edit out. You have been listening to Lucky Paper Radio. You should go check out luckypaper.co where you will find the Strixhaven and Commander 2021 perspective articles, which Jet worked his butt off on. We work really hard running these surveys. Anthony builds a whole custom survey for you so it's easy to fill out. Jet analyzes the data, writes a whole article. So go check it out. Uh, we want it to be a good resource for everybody. And let us know if there's any ways we can improve that because we're spending a lot of time on it. So we might as well spend the time doing this stuff that's going to be most helpful to people that are reading. Jet, anything else you want to tell people? Nope, not really. I mean, take a look at the articles. I encourage people to, to look at some of the data and also explore the results in the context of the map, which I think is a pretty cool new addition. Yeah, good point. We Check out the map integration. Very cool. And also, you know what? If you want to see the map updated just like we do, maybe tweet at Cube Cobra. Tell them to give us some updated data. We, uh, we'd love to update that map. We're just waiting on a new export whenever they get around to it. So uh, maybe a little bit of social pressure would be good there. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All of the magic cards are made by Wizards of the Coast. All the talking is done by me, Jet, and Anthony. Thanks for tuning in to our set review. We'll see you next time. Just don't get to clap. Actually, you should clap if I'm counting down because it's hard for me to clap and also get my hands in here. So you're on clap duty. You could also scream very loud and very short. <laughs> like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right, you ready, Jet? Are you recording? Uh, I am now recording. Great. Fantastic. I'm going to count down three, two, one, and on zero, you're going to clap. Three, two, one. I clapped because you thought you were going to say zero. No. On... <laughs> Is All it right. Like... Okay, I so mean, I'm... would you clap where the zero would be? Okay, so I was supposed to do interpolation. No, I said three, two, one, clap. You said clap, clap on zero, with... and then you didn't say yeah, zero. Yeah, on zero. Yeah, but then you didn't say zero. How <laughs> was I supposed to know where it was? <laughs> because of the timing between the three, the two, and the one. All right, let me do this again. Jesus. All right, here we go. All right. <clears throat> Three, two, one. I, I did a different outro because Jet was here. I didn't say give you opportunity to say your classic line. Thanks for talking about magic with me too, Andy. Your classic. Give, give it to him, Anthony. Give, break him. Break him. Break him one off. It's too much pressure. <laughs> he doesn't. Does anybody? Can we stop? Can we stop uh, talking about magic and play magic? I'm I'm days away from my immunity immunity day. <laughs> Yeah, Anthony and I have, uh, you know, 72 hours before we are fully immune. Just going to go kiss all the magic cards, I think. I'm just going to just rip open a pack and eat it. Okay, okay, tier list, most kissable magic cards. Most kissable? Are we going to get canceled for this? We might. <laughs> I'm just going to name dogs. What are you going to name? <laughs> uh, what's the name of that? Bayou Groff, plant dog. Pest Ew. infestation. Ew, y'all, y'all freaks. I think most kissable magic card... I mean, actually, it might be kind of fun to kiss a Beeble. Do they seem slimy? 
No, they're furry. I feel like beebles are like, oh man, what is the? Is, is it? It's not furby. It's it's the what are the things that <laughs> the little gremlins? Uh, you, you could be thinking of Furby's. Furby's a little toy. Is that the one that, like, in the middle of the night, if you feed it yes. past midnight? Okay. Oh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Those aren't Furby's. Those are, like... You thinking of Tamagotchi's? <laughs> yeah, that, that must be it. Harmless offering. You know what? I decided magic cards aren't kissable people. I'm yeah. just, uh, I'm, in a, I'm in a haze. <laughs> I'm in an immunity haze. I mean, you have to say Hushbringer, or at least mention it, right? Oh, just have those big lips. It's almost life-size lips on a Hushbringer. Yikes. All right, we're done. <laughs> this has gone off the rails.